Clinton here. Legal and it's getting AF. Hot Stormy Daniels special grand Just jury posted indictment. a couple hours ago. Michael Cohen, according to his own reporting, is going in for number 16, 16 <laughs> visits. He says he's had over time with the Manhattan DA's office. Man. He went in today on Wednesday for number 16. And it's obvious he's being prepped and primed to testify before the special grand jury about Stormy Daniels. Who better to talk about Stormy Daniels than Michael Cohen, who's already testified that the whole plot was hatched in the Trump's Oval Office down. with him and Donald Trump to pay off Stormy Daniels $130,000. So there's only two witnesses. Well, there's three. Donald Trump, Alan Weisselberg, who, who cooked the books about the payment, and Michael Cohen. And so we, we have that testimony, Michael Cohen. As long as we're at Manhattan and Manhattan DA, old stomping grounds for my co-anchor, Karen Freeman at Nippolo, let's talk about Mark Pomerantz, former special prosecutor of all things Trump, and his new memoirs out. Craps on uh, Alvin Bragg, but he also sort of shades the Stormy Daniels prosecution, doesn't think much of that, and has his own particular opinion about Michael Cohen as a witness. And we'll talk to Karen Freeman at Nippolo about all that. And then we'll talk about what is happening with the assault on women's rights and abortion rights in America. And specifically, the MAGA right wing has found their judge of choice, Mark Kazmarek, the only judge sitting in Abilene, Texas, who came out of a Christian right right wing organization where he was deputy general counsel, where he is a religious zealot, a Christian yes. fanatic. Yes, a oh Trump appointee. God. No surprise there. And that's the uh, that is the court of choice when you want to challenge yeah. abortion rights. What are they all up in arms about today? They want to ban in all 50 states the FDA approved 20 year abortion pill it is the primary way uh -huh. that women obtain abortions today since the dobbs decision it's not at abortion clinics it's through fda approved drugs delivered to their door and if this judge has its way sometime next week there will be a 50 state ban on the use of the fda fda oh, approved man. abortion drug and as long as we're on the topic of abortion at the very same time a clinton appointee sitting in the district of columbia in a criminal case involving right-wing catholic protesters who a year ago tried to block access with their bodies to abortion clinics in dc up on criminal charges because that's a that's a uh, violation of federal law. Their new argument, there's no constitutional right for a woman to have an abortion. So there shouldn't be any federal law that stops me from stopping access to an abortion clinic. And the judge sort of scratched her head and said, hmm, that's interesting. But what's more interesting is, isn't there a constitutional right to an abortion that's inside the Constitution, but maybe not with the 14th Amendment, which was the focus of Sam Alito's Dobbs decision? And the judge, for extra credit and homework, told the lawyers to go look at the 13th Amendment, which is the amendment that outlawed slavery, arguing that isn't a woman being forced to be an involuntary servitude to the fetus. Not making this up. Judge sent them home, told them to go write briefs, come back in March, and let's talk about whether there's other places for a constitutional right to an abortion. And then we're going to end it with, you know, social media is the uh, is the uh, friend of the Department of Justice. It's great for catching the 950 Jan 6 insurrectionists. It's great for convicting them in a court of law. And it's also, you know, the judges read the newspaper too. And it looks like Judge Mehta, 
one of our favorite judges in the, in the District of Columbia. He's the one presiding over all the Oath Keeper cases. He's none too pleased to find out that right after he did a stipulated bench trial, we'll talk more about that, and convicted Thomas B. Adams Jr. of obstruction of um, interference with the congressional uh, proceeding, carrying a 20-year sentence right after that. Mr. Adams gave an interview to his local newspaper in Illinois and recanted the whole thing, said he's not guilty of any crime at all. He was just a Trumper who was unemployed, nothing to do on Jan 6th, and decided to go and occupy the uh, the cradle of our democracy. That's all. Well, Judge Maida reads. It wasn't even the Department of Justice that brought it to his attention. And he's none too pleased and told the lawyers in that case he wants full briefing as to why he shouldn't vacate his ruling in the bench trial and give Mr. Mr. Adams what he wants, which is a jury of his peers to get convicted there. The sentencing was going to be in, in June. He was looking at 20 years. Lord knows what he'll be looking at now if he makes Judge Maida go through an entirely new trial. That's what we're talking about today on Legal AF. I'm Michael Popak with my co-anchor every Wednesday, former prosecutor, current defense lawyer, current great friend, Karen Friedman Agnifilo. Hi, Karen. Hello, Popak. How are you doing today? Got to take a breath. I had to cram all that in, <laughs> bend my salad style. Yeah, after last night, exactly. After after <laughs> last night's big uh, big State of the Union address where oh. Joe Biden showed the oh, world yeah. he still has it, right? Yeah, we, let's spend a minute. We, we sit at the intersection of law and politics. If anybody was questioning the vim and vigor of this 80-year-old president and his desire to run for re-election, I think that was all answered last night. And if it wasn't answered last night with a masterful one-hour uh, State of the Union address, his off-the-cuff, I mean, I'm sure his handlers were like, you know, sort of white-knuckling it for that moment. But Joe Biden is the best sometimes when he's off-the-cuff and unscripted. He's good. And when he started doing like a, like a church service, a call and response between him and the Republican hecklers like the feather boa-wearing Marjorie Taylor Greene and the bright yellow neon dress-wearing cinema and all the no's and liars, he was in his element. He got them to commit in front of the American people to support Medicare and Medicaid forever and, ne and never, never seek cuts to it. So and he's on a whistle stop tour. Karen, I think you caught it in, in Wisconsin and then Pennsylvania coming off coming off a high. That's that is a win. People, if you don't know what a win looks like, that state of the union address, that was a win for Joe Biden. Yeah, he was great. He it was it, he just still has it. So that oh, was really man. great. One thousand percent. So let's get. Let's start. You know, we're on a roll. <laughs> we're on a roll. We're on a Manhattan roll, a hard roll with butter. Let's get to the Manhattan DA's office where you were there for some amount of time. You and I argue. You know exactly what it is. I don't think you were there that long because it couldn't possibly be true. But you were there for a long time. As What was your title? You were, you were an assistant DA or you had a higher title than that? So there's the district attorney, and yeah. everyone under him are assistant district attorneys. So, so they, don't, was... they don't do deputy. Well, no, they no, they don't. It's assistant DA or assistant district attorney. I happen to be the chief assistant district That's attorney, it. which means That's it. That's which it. means I was the number two. But I held all sorts of positions in that office. I I was a I was a chief, a deputy chief, uh, all, all sorts of different different types of things that I did there. So did you ever nice think thing. about being? Did you ever think about changing it to chief assistant uh, uh, district attorney AF? <laughs> was that ever a thought? No, but, you know, at the office, nobody ever called me anything but KFA. It That's it. KFA, KFA, KFA. So. KFA, AF. <laughs> <laughs> 
So let's talk about what's going on there. We got two big developments, right? Michael Cohen on a, I almost said competing podcast, not competing podcast. You know, it's another podcast hosted by Ben along with Michael Cohen. Oh, come on. It is a competition. Let's go. Is it? Well, yeah, then we're, totally. we're, we're going to take them. We're taking we need you to and take me. them. We need more. Yeah, exactly. We can beat those Polit- guys. Political beatdown. We're going to beat down political beatdown. Now they're they're one of our siblings. We can't I know. Do that. But kidding. but yeah, the good news about that rivalry. is yeah, the good news about that, Karen, is that they break news. Like Michael Cohen, even before it got leaked from your old office, said, "I'm going in for number sixteen, and I'm going to meet." And I believe he also said something else very interesting on the podcast with with Ben. He said, "I in my heart believe that Alvin Bragg is." really, really interested and has conviction, no pun intended, about going after Donald Trump this time, even if other people don't agree with me. So that was a very interesting, and that's somebody who's been interacting with Alvin Bragg and the prosecutors around him about Stormy Daniels and other things for, for a long, long time. So that was that was good to hear. So he goes in today. We don't know exactly, although I'm sure Michael will tell us exactly what he said, but it's obvious he's being groomed and primed and prepped to testify uh, in front of the special grand jury. Before we talk about Mark Pomerantz and his views about the Stormy Daniels case, pros and cons, and Michael Cohen as a witness, pro and con, what do you think about about my my thought that they're obviously going to bring him into the special grand jury? Michael Cohen, what do you think? Well, Alvin Bragg, who appeared on our show recently and in the news media, has been very clear and very open that the case uh, investigations, and there are multiple, into Donald Trump is ongoing and it is continuing. And we talked about it a couple of times that it appears that the Stormy Daniels matter is heating up and going into the grand jury now because the statute of limitations will be running uh it's unclear exactly when it is because there is some periods of time that will not be charged to the government based on Donald Trumping out of the jurisdiction. But I think the calculation has the statute running sometime this May. So it does make sense that that case is going in now. And at the same time, uh, of course, Michael Cohen is a key witness in that. I think also it makes sense because they convicted the Trump organization and Alan Weisselberg is another witness in the Stormy Daniels matter. And I think they wanted to test drive him too and see how he would do on the stand and see whether or not they're going to utilize him as a witness in that case. So it makes sense that this is case number two for them. Alvin Bragg has was been very, very clear that the investigation is pending, that it's ongoing. And I agree with you that given the statute of limitations issue, I do think that's going into the grand jury now. So whether or not uh, Michael Cohen is going to testify today, that's to be seen. But I do think uh, evidence and witnesses are going into the grand jury. I want to caution Michael, uh, frankly, um, If I was the prosecutor on this case and my witness was going out and talking publicly about the pending investigation and potentially revealing what was going on in the office, I would have a really uh, difficult time with that because that's fodder for cross-examination at trial. So hopefully he, I I thought a couple weeks ago when he he spoke about how, look, I, I went to the DA's office, but I'm not going to say anything about it because it's a very serious investigation and it has to, I want to make sure that, um, 
that they that the case has integrity. I mean, look, bringing criminal charges against anybody it should be a sober, uh, a, a very sober, difficult decision because prosecutors are given an enormous power. So I, I really do think that um, we need to to remember that and treat it with the seriousness that it is, and not do anything uh, to jeopardize the case. You know looking for headlines, et cetera, because all of that can be used as uh, fodder for cross-examination. It gives you a, a bias, an interest, a, an ax to grind. I mean, a, a skilled trial lawyer such as yourself, Popot, for example, who has lots of experience in, uh, cross-examining uh, witnesses would have a field day with something like that. So you know, in addition to the other uh, issues that uh, Michael Cohen brings to the table, he he's First of all, he's one of the greatest witnesses, greatest witnesses a prosecutor could have because he was a true insider and he's great at telling what happened and how it happened. And he's very compelling, but he does bring some baggage to to the table that uh, that you've talked about. And I've talked about about his um, at the like how close he was to Donald Trump. And for a while, he was very much on doing Trump's bidding and, and on Trump's side. And now he has an extra grind against him. I mean, the title of his book is Revenge. And so again, if I was representing Donald Trump, I would say you want revenge <laughs> against him. And so, you know, that's why you're making this up and this is why you're lying and you've been convicted of lying. And, you know, all the things that a defense, a skilled defense attorney would do on cross to him, you don't want to give them more ammunition. So yeah. Again, I think I think Michael Cohen is a, just an incredible witness. It's great that he's going that he's working with the DA's office, but I, I do think we all have to hope that uh, that you know this that this remains um, a very serious case with serious witnesses. Here's a new header for our producer: Karen Freeman Agnifilo warns Michael Cohen, fellow podcaster, "Don't piss me off." No, I'm kidding. That's the, no, that's look, what I, I heard. I, that's what I heard. It's not me. I just I it's 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 and and again, I, I I listened to the podcast with with him and Ben and uh, that I think came out this morning about um, this new podcast called what, was it, what is it called? Gloves political, off or, political beatdown. Oh, political beatdown. Yes, um, the political beatdown, and it's great. He's great. He will make a great witness. The the best part of Michael Cohen is you can't control him. He says what he's going to say, and he could talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. There's no there's no kind of prepping him or controlling him. But you, ju I just want to caution that you know that you don't want to give. You want to make sure this is a you you want to you want to land the plane right. You want yeah. to take it across the finish line and get a conviction. And so you want you don't want to give too much fodder to the defense attorney uh, to be cross examined with. So let let's let's switch gears for a minute. Right on that point, that was a perfect segue for us. Mark Parmerantz, who brought in by your prior boss, Cy Vance, a little bit of Cy Vance. He was there for a couple of years with Cy Vance, being special prosecutor, looking at all things Trump all potential cases, including the ones that are over with as well. Letitia James, New York Attorney General, under her very broad superpowers, what we call Executive Law 6312, which means she can give the death penalty to the company, the financial death penalty to Trump and, and the kids and Alan Weisselberg and the other 16 people that are part of her case. But that's on the civil side. On the criminal side, Mark Pomerantz in his new book, which he, and he's now out talking about it, on one of your favorite shows, I'm not making this up, Karen, he appeared on Fresh Air, but not with Terry Gross. And on Fresh Air, Mark, it's an inside joke, and in Mark Pomerantz 
said the following about the Stormy Daniels case and by extension, Michael Cohen. And I'm only repeating uh, Mark Pomerantz, I'm summarizing. Mark Pomerantz said that he didn't think the Stormy Daniel case was that strong or that great. He didn't think Cy Vance did either. He, uh, that Cy Vance was a little bit of, um, this is my artist rendering of Cy Vance, meh. Like that was a meh case because it was a misdemeanor. Maybe they could ratchet it up to a felony. We, we went over in the last podcast the differences in how you, the, 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 the gymnastics as a prosecutor you have to do to find the second crime or the cover-up of the other crime in order to get it to a misdemeanor. So that wasn't a big case for him. Mark Pomerantz, if you take anything away from his, his um, interviews and anything away from his book, it is the financial um, uh, the magic trick cooking of the books that Donald Trump has done with the valuation of real estate up and down, hyperinflated and then deflated, depending upon whether he was getting a loan, getting insurance or trying to get a tax credit. That is where for him, Mark Pomerantz, the criminal case lies. So he's sort of, uh, this is my view, a little jealous of what Letitia James is doing because he thinks the Manhattan DA's office should have done it too. And he says, yeah, I kind of get why Alvin Bragg didn't want to do it, you know, 90 days into his job. But we made a compelling argument. I don't know why, he said. I don't know why Alvin Bragg rejected it. We never had a real substantive meeting about it. But I think there was a very strong case there. As to Stormy Daniels, it looks like Pomerantz's biggest problem was Michael Cohen as a witness. And you went over the little checklist. The pluses we all agree with. Michael was in the room when everything happened, including the Oval Office, Okay, according to his testimony. Every place that if you're tracking, if you're following the money, with Michael as the bag man, he's in every place that you, you know, for the chain of custody of the $130,000. So that's great. And if that was all Michael Cohen had to testify about, and that was him as a fact witness, that would be a grand slam, double grand slam home run. But that's all the pluses. Also, you know, Mark Pomerantz said that, um, that he convinced that that Michael Cohen, um, having met with him, I assume, that Michael Cohen as a witness is also somebody that knows the difference between fact and fiction. That he's, he didn't go as far to say he's a truth teller, but he said that he's somebody that understands the difference between fact and fiction. And like you said, he talks a lot. He's got a lot to say and all of that. That's on the plus side of the column. On the minus side of the column, he was convicted of perjury. He was convicted, you know, he's, which is the, the first place you go in prosecution. He, he actually corrected that this morning in his, um, Michael Cohen corrected say? that uh, in the beatdown episode today that he was not convicted of perjury, which is. A what specific, was he convicted of? He was convicted of <laughs> lying, which under is different. Oath. Lying under oath uh, right. to Congress, which is different than perjury. That's true. It's a It's a 1001 violation, not a perjury or conviction, not a perjury. I, st- I, I am fine with that. I stand corrected. So I'll be the cross examiner like, that you would be as well. So, <laughs> sir, you were convicted of a 1001 violation because you lied under oath to to Congress. Isn't that right? about some of these very issues. I mean, you raised your right hand like you did here today. Right, you you swore to tell the truth, just like you did here. And then you also, you know, they'll go over the whole thing. You brought a lawsuit and and challenged the Bureau of Prisons and Donald Trump. You said that they kept you in prison longer than you should have been. You should have been released under COVID policy, but that they retaliated against you. And you actually won that lawsuit. And you wrote a book, and we'll put it up on the screen for the jury. Click, called Revenge. That's why you're here, sir, right, to get your revenge. So it look, we all like Michael as a person and as a podcaster and as a truth teller. 
But that is different than Michael as a witness in front of a jury with our adversarial process and, and a vigorous cross-examination by, let's just say, somebody like Joe Tacopina, which I assume is going to be the type of person that Donald Trump would hire, um, who, look, Michael can hold his own, but Joe Tacopina is a very skilled cross-examiner um, and always has been in a courtroom. So all of that, Mark Pomerantz was like, meh, I'm not really into the Stormy Daniels case. Um, it's good that, you know, Alvin's doing it, but that's not the case that I wanted him to do. I wanted him to do the financial fraud case. So we have kind of that out there. So I guess I'll leave it at that with you now. Having now heard um, Mark Parmerance's sort of view of his own views, we don't have to get too much more into Michael as a witness, but what do you think about Pomerance's view at the stronger case? Bragg should have done it. I was right. He's wrong. And eh, Stormy Daniels is sort of window dressing. Well, so first of all, none of us have all the information about the case, not even about the cases, not even Mark Pomerantz, who left the office about a year ago. So he has no idea what evidence uh, Alvin Bragg's office has has amassed in either case to be able to say which one is stronger or which one is not. I think at the time that uh, the, the time about a year ago when Mike when Pomerantz left, I think uh, it was the feeling that the Stormy Daniels case was not ready for prime time and the other case was, but I think a lot has happened in the last year that has potentially made one or the other case um, stronger or both. So, so it's hard to comment on the merits of the case and which one should go just because by, by design, it's all secret. We don't have that information. So I don't know, but as for, where we are now and Pomerantz. It's a complicated, this is a very complicated knife edge that he is walking on because he, I think a lot of people thought both he and Kerry Dunn, who were the two prosecutors who were working on the Trump case. Now, I don't really know Mark Pomerantz. I, I think I've met him maybe once, but I've certainly never worked with him. Kerry Dunn, I've worked with for a very long time. He worked for Cy uh, when I did for a very long time. And he was actually the attorney who argued all the way to the United States Supreme Court to get the um, Trump's tax returns. And so he was very much a, a, a co-partner, co-prosecutor. It was the two of them who were in charge of the investigation into Trump. And I say that because he has been completely silent and he hasn't, his, his letter of resignation, if he gave one, was not leaked to the press. He has not been appearing on every news show, like 60 Minutes, and he certainly didn't write a book that he's going to profit from where he's going to tell all and, and kiss and tell, you know? So I, to me, Mark Pomerantz has gone from what, what I thought many thought was, was a national hero for resigning in protest in a case that he thought should be brought. And now I, I really think he has tarred and marred the case by, by doing this sort of kiss and tell and writing a for profit book about, um, about a case that, you know, frankly, he, nobody, nobody elected him DA, right? As I say, heavy is the head who wears the crown. And that's something Cy Vance used to say to me all the time when I used to disagree, you know, 
I disagreed with him sometimes on whether or not something should happen or a case should, uh, whether we should give an offer on a case or not. You know, every once in a while, I would disagree with him. Not not a lot, but every once in a while. And, you know, the one thing he would say to me is, is you know, he was elected DA. He's the one who has to make those difficult decisions. And and I respected that. You know, we used to all say if, if an ADA disagreed with something we were telling them to do or asking them to do, um, on a case, you know, we would have to remind them that, you know, that this is that 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 basically we, we are helping Cy Vance with his caseload. You know, these are his cases. He was elected by the people of the state of New York and this, the residents of Manhattan, and he is the one who has to both live and die by the decisions. Right? It's not about the individual prosecutor. It's it's at the end of the day, he's the one who answers to everybody that, about whether a case a is very, good or strong. Go ahead. I was going to say, that's a very, very good point. And I made it on a hot take recently. It's easy for even special prosecutors and all they were doing, which is a good and a bad thing, is is prosecuting Donald Trump. You know, it's like that old line about, you know, to a, to a hammer, everything's a nail. To a special prosecutor looking at Donald Trump, there's crimes everywhere. I get it. But at the end of the day, and I said this in defense of your boss, I said at the end of the day, he's not the district attorney. And 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 the buck stops literally on that desk to make that decision, just as we may not have agreed with Alvin Bragg in his 90th day having to make the decision. And maybe a year later, which he's doing now, he's he's made a new decision about it. But did I, let me ask you a question. Did I may have misread this. Did Pomerantz and Dunn go into law practice together? That yeah, new firm. Yeah. So I, I get it that Don is the the silent partner, you know, he's the uh, abbot to the uh, Pomerantz's Costello, but you know, he's in the same firm, a new public interest law. No, firm. and and Pomerantz, Mark Pomerantz, don't get me wrong, he is an extremely well respected lawyer who has a very long history and career as an excellent attorney, and I have tremendous respect for him as a lawyer. What I don't like and what I am not happy about, frankly, but again, who died and made me, it had made me queen, right? So podcaster. But, yeah, but it's but <laughs> I, I understand, but but what I don't like, and I'll tell you what really upset me about Pomerantz, and I haven't read the book yet, but I did read uh, excerpts of it um, that were reported on. And and again, knowing nothing about the strength of the evidence and, and not necessarily having an opinion on the merits of Bragg's decision, which, you know, frankly, I'm a Cy Vance person. So if Cy thought there was enough, I, t I tend to respect that. So even if I were to agree with you know, the decision under Cy Vance that it should go forward. What I strongly disagree with is Pomerantz's criticism of the career prosecutors at the Manhattan DA's mm -hmm. office. And my understanding is that he goes after them in this book and attacks them as, quote, faint-hearted career prosecutors who, you know, who deigned to disagree with him about a decision on whether to cr charge a crime. And he, he criticized them because they spoke about the need to, quote, follow the evidence. And I'm sorry, to me, Mr. Pomerantz really misapprehends the role of the prosecutor. And I was taught under Robert Morgenthau, as was every ADA, because this is the lesson that gets taught to every single person who's there, that you prosecute cases without fear or favor. That was a tradition that was carried on by his successors, Cyrus Vance and now Alvin Bragg. And Morgenthau was just as firm that a crime should not be charged if the evidence did not support it, even if the person morally deserves it, or you're going to get some high profile headline that was going to result from it. You can't 
do it. And fairness, excellence, ethics, you know, are, is the thing that the career prosecutors at the Manhattan DA's office live by. And that's one of the reasons the Manhattan DA's office is known as one of the premier state prosecutor's offices in the country and always has been. And so to go after, again, it's, it's fair game. Go after Alvin Bragg, go after Cy Vance. They were elected to be criticized. They were elected to make these decisions and you can disagree with them. But the minute you go after the career prosecutors who didn't agree, they agreed with Bragg that there wasn't enough to charge this case. And I want to say one other thing. If what Bragg said was, I just want to investigate more. I want more. Why didn't they, if he cared so much, if they cared so much about the case, why didn't they stay? It was only two months. Why didn't they stay and help him develop the case? Number one. And number two, if the case is so strong, why hasn't the Southern District brought it? That's the other thing. If this case was such a rock crusher, strong case, why hasn't the Southern District brought it? It's actually, my understanding is it's a tough case. It's not it's a it's a hard call. It, it, it's a hard call. But to go after those career prosecutors, that's when I'm going to stick up. That's what I'm going to stand up and I'm going to say something because those are the finest people I've ever worked with in my life. The pissed Sorry. off edition of Legal AF with Karen it's, it's Friedman just, you can't and Gifflo. Oh, but that. I agree. But let me make it clear. I agree with you. First of all, I got one another thing. You said two things, and and I like the uh, rock crushing case. That's a great um, great visual image of that. The case was so great, Cy Vance would have brought it. I mean, everybody talks about, Cy Vance had the case for a year and a half, okay? And yes, he didn't run for re-election. He decided not to do that, and he turned it over to somebody else. He wanted another prosecutor. But it's not like he left a note on the new prosecutor's desk that said, this is a really strong case for you. Don't even bother looking at the evidence and making your own decision. Just indict, indict, indict. It's up to the new guy. And I never thought, I'm sorry, I never thought it was fair to Alvin and I don't know him personally, and you do, and I didn't interview him, and you did. But I never thought it was fair that the guy was 90 days into his job to make the most important, momentous decision, arguably in his career, to be the only prosecutor in America to bring a criminal case against a former president, right? We love Fawdy Willis, and and I'm, I'm, I check the news every minute, but she hasn't brought it yet either. I think she will, but she hasn't yet either. The feds haven't brought the case against him yet either. Cy Vance had it for two years and didn't. So you're right. Maybe he just was like, I need more time to be convinced. I just got here. And, and yeah, that wasn't good enough for, like I said, the hammer and the nail, which is Mark Pomerantz. These are our opinions. People can disagree, I'm sure, in the chat. Let me look at the chat. Yeah, I'm sure in the chat there's going to be some disagreement. But you got to be respectful that Karen is bringing this opinion, even from a place that I can't even bring it from, which is having worked in the Manhattan DA office, DA's office with the very people that Mark Pomerantz seems to have criticized. Now, look, I don't like doing criticism of a book that neither you or I have read anything of. So I'll make a promise to everybody. We'll read it. Karen and I will read it. And we'll highlight the places for which we take exception. And we'll bring it back to the legal AF uh, community, to the family at some other time. But that's where we are at at this moment. Um, I don't think you're going to get any better analysis than what KFA just gave you of, of it all. And we've talked, I think, honestly and transparently about Michael Cohen as witness and the Stormy Daniels case of it. Now, look, if the Stormy Daniels case is the straw that breaks the camel's back on the heels of the 17 count felony convictions that they got against the Trump organization, and now they're moving here and they're going to squeeze, as I said before, squeeze Alan Weisselberg a little more 
12 miles. He's only sitting 12 miles from the DA's office on Rikers Island, floating around in Queens. Um, it's a very close hop, skip, and a jump by a, by a prosecutor. Go over there and go visit Mr. Weisselberg and tell him, hey, here's a mirror. Why don't you take a look at it? And uh, you're looking at five to ten years. You'll never get out of here in your natural life. You love your grandchildren. You want to look at them through plexiglass um, over the next 10, 15 years. That's your call. You want to be like Bernie Madoff. You want to die in prison. Or, or you can cooperate and talk to us more about Donald Trump in the Stormy Daniels case and maybe some other cases. So maybe this is, you know, this is, I don't know, I'm into metaphors and analogies today. You know, you don't, you don't, um, and, and all the animal lovers, I'm an animal lover. You can see my dog walking around behind me, but I'll, I'll talk about frogs. It's the old joke. You don't boil a frog by throwing him into hot, scalding water. You boil a frog by having cold water and you turn the heat up one notch at a time until the frog is cooked. And that may be what Alvin Bragg is doing. We got the Trump org, 17 counts, you know, heats up a little bit. Now you got you got the Stormy Daniels. That's sort of a low-hanging fruit if the jury believes it, based on Michael Cohen and Wylan Weisberg testimony. Now the heat's boy now we're now we're roiling and boiling. And now we go for the kill. Now we go for the thing as he's watching Letitia James. She was going to trial hell or high water, according to the judge Engoron. On October 2nd, he gets to watch that a little bit, too, and then he goes for a second or third prosecution. of, You know, we we may be writing a different chapter about Alvin Bragg when this is all said and done. Jury is still out, no pun intended. Let's move on. 2023. No, I was just going to say 2023, I think, is going to see at least four, if not more, indictments against Trump. Uh, that's my my feeling. And I think they're going to all somebody has to go first. And, and and once somebody goes first, I think you're going to see a succession of them. And I think this whole Pomerantz book is just going to look like sour grapes at that point. So, you know, and I because I think that's what it is. Everybody's yeah. very everybody's still investigating. I, there's everybody's still going. And it's I think I think we're going to see uh, a lot of movement this year. You see the sunshine that's shining into my podcast studio slash dining room? Yes. It's 52 degrees in February in Manhattan, everybody, in New York, everybody. It's like spring. I didn't even wear a coat. I'm literally getting spring sunshine flooding into my my dining room during our our, <laughs> our, uh, our podcast. And um, on a jovial moment, on a jovial note, we've got, thank, thank God, thank the higher powers, we've got some sponsors that like to be associated with Legal AF and the Legal AF family, and who better, who better to bring the message of our sponsors today than Jordy Micellis. Jordy Micellis, fan favorite, my favorite from almost the beginning. He's, he's definitely my favorite brother. Uh, Jordy's going to give us a word from some of our sponsors. Jordy, take it away. And now let's take a quick break to talk about our next partner, Green Chef. Green Chef has expanded their menu. Now choose from 30 recipes weekly with the option to mix and match meals from different dietary preferences in the same box without changing your plan. This means you can order vegan one day and then keto the next. Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well with dinners that work for you, not the other way around. In 2023, help yourself to delicious, convenient recipes that support your healthy lifestyle and taste good too. Eat well without having to sacrifice taste. Also, Green Chef is the only meal kit that is both carbon and plastic offset. Green Chef offsets 100% of their carbon footprint as well as 100% of the plastic in every box. My wife and I absolutely love Green Chef because of how easy it is to cook the meals and how delicious each meal is. 
Our favorite recipe is the Parmesan crusted chicken. It is incredible. Go to greenchef.com slash legalaf60 and use code legalaf60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. That's greenchef.com slash legalaf60 and use code legalaf60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. Our next sponsor this week is Highland Titles. At highlandtitles.com, you can become a lord or lady of Glencoe for less than $50. Now, thanks to a quirk in Scottish law, you can buy one square foot of land in Scotland as a gift. Highland Titles has been selling these plots of land for 16 years and have more than over 300,000 happy customers. They use their profits to manage the land as a nature reserve. And the Highland Titles Nature Reserve near Glencoe is one of the most popular nature reserves in Scotland. People travel from all over the world to find their very own plot of land. You get a personalized luxury gift pack and help conserve the beautiful Scottish Highlands at the same time. Now, Highland Titles literally spread ownership of the land amongst thousands of people. It makes it impossible for developers like mm, Donald Trump to turn the landscape into a golf course. It's a really cool gift that makes land ownership a possibility for everyone. You can use the discount code LEGALAF to get 20% off at HighlandTitles.com. With your purchase, you get a fully personalized, instantly available digital download with access to a dashboard where you can check out the webcams and the exact distance you are from your plot at any time. Just head to HighlandTitles.com and use code LEGALAF to get 20% off at checkout. And now, back to the video. All right, let's move from the Manhattan DA's office to abortion rights, constitutional rights, women's right to choose, and where we stand as of February of 2023. We're going to do it through the lens of two, two competing judges, if you will, two competing cases, two competing matters. On the one hand, we've got a judge in the District of Columbia, who we'll talk more about, who had a criminal case pending right now against Catholic right-wing activists who were arrested for blocking abortion clinics and a woman's right to use them, which is a violation of a federal law, not the Constitution, but a federal law against doing just that. And their argument in defense is, well, we can't be, we can't be convicted of that crime any longer because there's no constitutional right to an abortion. I don't know what that has to do with the federal right that's on the books, but okay. And um, the D.C. Uh, Circuit Judge... Uh, Judge Catelli, um, who we've talked about in the past, including giving really amazing sentencing to Jan 6 people. She's also the, the judge, a Clinton appointee, who uh, rejected and overturned Trump's ban on transgender people serving in the military, just to give you a little bit of context. And she said, well, this is a very interesting argument that you're making. She didn't even get into the, why are we talking about the Constitution at all? You, you were convicted of a federal crime. But having said that, if you're going to make this argument in my courtroom that there's a link between the constitutional right to an abortion and the crime on the books that the Congress passed many, many years ago, not sure I agree with you, but why don't we do some homework? And she literally gave homework, Karen, to, uh, the, the, um, uh, to the two teams of lawyers in the room and said, I want briefing. I want briefing on this issue. The entire Dobbs decision written by Sam Alito and for which they got their votes, is based on the 14th Amendment equal protection, finding that there, is, there isn't a constitutional right to an abortion, that there never was one even 50 years ago under Roe versus Wade. And so, of course, they didn't feel guilty in taking it away because they, they thought there never should have been one. 
notwithstanding 50 years of precedent and people's reliance on this constitutional principle and the fact that in the history of our of our country there's never been a a constitutional right once extended that was ripped away putting that aside for a minute the entire analysis all of the briefs that were submitted by the government by the opponents all the amicus curiae briefs friend of the court briefs all of them focused on the 14th amendment they didn't argue that there was any other place in the constitution that would recognize a woman's right to choose and so this judge said, what about, for instance, the 13th Amendment, involuntary servitude, arguing why is enforcing a woman to involuntarily carry a fetus to term slavery? I'd like to see some briefing on that. That's interesting. I'm going to turn it to Karen right now. And then after that, we're going to talk about Judge Matthew Kazmarek, who is the judge of choice for the right-wing Magaset. He is the only judge that sits in Amarillo, Texas, in the Northern District of Texas, which sits in the Fifth Circuit, which we've talked about a lot as a right-wing circuit that makes some kind of crazy decisions. Um, and they run in, and there's no link to Amarillo and the case against the FDA-approved abortion pills other than they're forum shopping, and they want their judge. And the Republicans love to complain that judges aren't supposed to make law, but they want Matthew Kaczmarek formerly the Deputy General Counsel of right-wing Christian fundamentalist group called First Liberty, who is, who is a devout Christian who talks about the importance of Christianity, not just in his personal life, but in the way that he rules. And he's the judge that's now gonna, going to likely do a 50-state ban on the use of the FDA-approved abortion pill. Let's start with Judge Catelli, D.C. Circuit Court, and her, on her own, Sua sponte from the bench, given homework. Why don't we talk about the 13th Amendment? Why don't we talk about religious law when we talk about a woman's right to choose? What do you think about all that, Karen? Well, before before I answer your question, my favorite Popak is when you're Professor Popak. So there was something interesting that came out of this case, and it's a doctrine of ratio. How do you pronounce that? Decidendi? Decidendi. Decidendi. I, I thought this is perfect for po Professor Popak to explain to the legal to the to the you know whenever you nerd out like that and you you give a law school class. So first, I would love for you to talk about that doctrine, and then I'll I'll answer your question. Oh, I'll, I want to boat up on it while you talk about. You see, I'm going to throw it back to you. I'm going to okay. I want to get it right. Like we take okay. a lot of pride in when we educate when we talk not down to our listeners and followers and family and legal layoff, but educate them in a way that they, that we kind of, ex, you know, like an exploding diagram so that they can really understand it. So I don't want to do it off the cuff. Uh, I could do it even if you forced me to, I would, but give me a minute. You talk about it. By the time you come back, I'll be able to kind of break it down for all of our legal efforts. Okay, great. So this was a, I thought this was a really interesting decision by, uh, by judge caller Cotelli. So she, as you said, sua sponte or on her own raised this issue to the parties. And basically it's like she was almost thinking out loud and wondering out loud whether the Dobbs decision, which only ruled on whether the 14th amendment required the, um, 
access to abortion or right to abortion, right to abortion, whether the scope of the Dobbs decision is confined to the 14th Amendment. And don't forget the 14th mm. Amendment to the Constitution is is about um, no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty or property without due process or deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. And she looked at all of the arguments in the Dobbs case, all of the briefings, as well as the um, hundreds of amicus briefs that were filed in that case. And they were all the 14th Amendment. And so what she said is that the only thing that that decision, the Dobbs decision, or she wondered out loud whether the only thing that the Dobbs decision uh, applied to was whether or not the 14th Amendment uh, basically um, gave someone a right to an abortion, which they ruled it did not. Although Alito did say in his decision that uh, the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. He did not say the 14th Amendment does not confer a right to abortion. So so there is that statement that it that the decision may have um, may have encompassed the whole constitution, but she wondered aloud whether whether the ruling is really limited to the 14th Amendment and are there other places in the constitution that could ensure the right to an abortion, such as the 13th Amendment, which was passed in response to slavery, or that's what outlawed or abolished slavery. And the language there is neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except if you're punished for a crime, uh, can take place in the United States. So is this involuntary servitude? And I think it's a novel, interesting argument. You know, it's it's going to be tricky, I think, um, if if nobody else raised it. I think that, that makes it slightly tricky. But then I wondered to myself, perhaps nobody else raised it because they didn't want the court to rule on it. Maybe the the, the people who could have raised that said, you know what, I don't I, I want to keep the Supreme Court's decision as narrow as possible so that perhaps you could have this opportunity to uh, make these other arguments. Who knows what the reason is, um, but the bottom line is she is is asking this intellectual uh, question and she's asking the um, the the parties to write on it. And what I also thought was interesting about it was that the what and what she said was that Dobbs doesn't just affect people's access to abortion. It also affects their access to reproductive health services, counseling and referral services, etc. So so by shutting down these places that also offered abortion, I think you also impact women in other ways as well. So, you know, she talked about the the ratio, I thought it was decadendi or decadendi, whatever it is. It's been a long time since I was in law school. So I I hardly remember it, but I'd said, Professor Popak, this is this is what you could yeah. do. And I'm here. ready. So, so tell us what it is. <laughs> so the radio decidendi of the case or the radius decidendum, which is more than one, is the principle or rule that is embedded within the precedent. It is the thing upon which the case turns. It is distinguished from dictum, which is, you know, 
chatter and conversation that the judge uses in the rest of the 38 or 50 or 100 pages. But there's only one or two or multiple legal precedent or principles upon which the case turns. In this case, the argument would be that the 14th Amendment and the analysis of the 14th Amendment was the radio decidendi of the decision. And law students are often asked to figure out not just what the precedent of the case is, but what is the radio, what upon which did the legal principle, did the case and the decision turn on? And I'm going to quote, we're going to give it to Salty so you can put it up on the on the screen. Yale Law Journal, December 1930, and to answer a question, no, I was not there for it. I'm just reading. And it was written by by Arthur Goodhart, and he said, in discussing the nature of a precedent in English law, Sir John Salmon said, quote, a precedent, therefore, is a judicial decision which contains in itself a principle, the underlying principle which thus forms its authoritative element is often termed the radio decidendi. The concrete decision is binding between the parties to it, but it is the abstract ratio decidendi, thank you, Salty, which alone has the force of law as regards the world at large. How's that, Karen? You didn't good, disappoint. Right? You didn't disappoint, Popak. But <laughs> the reason that but the reason that's so important is because she is that that's going to be whether or not she can make this ruling or not. So if if the crux of the decision is the 14th Amendment and Alito's statement that there's no constitutional right to an abortion in, you know, there's no right to an abortion in the Constitution, is that dicta? Right. Or is that the reason for the decision or is it limited just to the 14th Amendment? So I, I, I think she's aggressive in a great way. Um, and I think that it'll be interesting to see how she rules. And I mean, look, then, of course, you do the mental gymnastics of, well, what if it eventually goes to the United States? You, you know, it's like until with the Supreme Court. Even if she, even if, even if, even if it works, then what? So, well, so we'll here's see, my but... here's here's my view on this. I, I don't think I think this is much ado about nothing. There's thousands, hundreds of thousands of federal law passed by Congress that are nowhere found in the U.S. Constitution. Not every federal law, in fact, the, the supreme vast majority of law does not find any hook in the U.S. Supreme in the U.S. Constitution. So for them to say, well, all federal law that Congress passed about abortion is out the window because it's no longer a constitutional right to an abortion. I'm not sure that's even true at all. I mean, unless Congress vacates the law, which they haven't done, if there's a law on the book, you're the former prosecutor, if there's a law on the book that says something is a crime, it remains a crime, even if the the, the, the time period in which they passed it was under the assumption that there was a constitutional right for a woman to choose. So I think this is interesting for those that want to know more about the 13th Amendment analysis. Start with uh, the movie Lincoln by Spielberg, which is all about the 13th Amendment and its passage. But there's plenty of scholarly um, uh, journals and approaches applying the 13th Amendment, involuntary servitude to the relationship, if you will, between a woman and the fetus that she is you know, carrying at that time. There's plenty of religious scholarly thought, including in the Jewish religion, that the fetus is not a human being at all until birth. And therefore, abortion is permitted in Jewish teaching. It is part of 
women's health care and reproductive health care under Talmudic law and Jewish law. It's not the only religious body. So the argument is, you know, you're forcing, again, your Christian principles down the throat of people or in another anatomical part uh, that you shouldn't be in. Um, and, you know, that has nothing to do with science. It has to do with your beliefs. If Amy Coney Barrett wants to believe that a fetus, you know, is, you know, a, a part, a heartbeat, even before it's a fetus, is life that needs to be protected. Okay, she can believe that. But the argument is don't shove that down our throat and make us and women lose the right to choose. So this is, this is and, and at the same time, the way that the, um, the progressives are handling this, while they're trying to maybe look for other passages in, and provisions in the, in the Constitution that were missed maybe in the Dobbs analysis, they're going to the state constitutions and pouring through them and saying, well, wait a minute, you've got an individual state constitution that was passed by your people, your state, that says that there's a, a right of privacy. It's expressed. It's not even, you don't even have to look for it. It's there in a lot of states' constitution. And why doesn't the right of privacy protect a woman's right to choose and have bodily autonomy? So you got that going on. You got judges um, that are raising the issue in their courtrooms, even in criminal cases. And now we got to talk about Judge Matthew Kosmerich, who's about, sorry to report, he's about to issue a 50-state um, ban on the FDA-approved abortion pills. Um, because it doesn't line up with his Christian politics and his Christian theology. Let's just be frank. And they handpicked him, the right, right-wing extremists. Senator Hawley's, uh, he's a senator, right? Is Josh Hawley yeah. a senator, Karen? Yeah. Senator Hawley's wife is the lead trial lawyer on behalf of a group of um, right-wing anti-abortion doctors whose entire argument for standing, meaning how you even get into federal courts, the number one thing that has to be evaluated first, is, well, there might be a hypothetical woman, by the way, this has never happened, a hypothetical woman in the last 23 years that they've been using the pill successfully who has some sort of um, side effect that I have to treat and I don't want to do that. So that's my standing. That's your standing for uh, 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 an FDA-approved drug that's been on the books for 23 years that that's, has, that's safer than Viagra? By the way, where's Viagra as a constitutional right in the U.S. Constitution? I don't think it's there either. So th this is any other judge that wasn't right-wing MAGA, Trump appointee like Kaczmarek, would reject this case on its face immediately by saying, I don't see any particularized harm, individual standing, or, or harm to you. Goodbye. Good day. Case over. But, but there, he's going he's gonna to do a what? I predict it right now, Karen. He's going to do one paragraph. He's going, to, he's going to gloss over the whole thing. I find standing. Let's get to the substance of the case. And then he's going to issue the ban. And then the Department of Justice is going to have to do fifth the fifth the two-step dance, Fifth Circuit emergency application to the U.S. Supreme Court. The thing that I found fascinating, because let's be honest, I'm a guy. I did not realize that since the Dobbs decision, the number one way that a woman gets an abortion in the United States is with the FDA-approved abortion pill and not at an abortion clinic. No, it was oh. before It was before Dobbs. It's, oh, there you go. Yeah, no. I'm going to shut up for, now and let you take it from no, here. No, no. <laughs> no, but women for a long time have been choosing uh, the, the abortion pill versus the um, going into a, a place and having an abortion because – you know, it's first of all, it's you get to do it in the privacy of your own home. You don't have to go somewhere. And, and it, it's it's kind of invasive to have an actual abortion. And by taking the, this pill that's been around for 23 years, um, 
it's it's something you can do on your own in a in consultation with a doctor. But since Dobbs, what's been happening is in states that ban abortion, there people are going online and getting the pills, and the pills are getting mailed to them, and so they're still have access to it. And what this is trying to do is stop that access so that people in in those states in all states can't have access to to these pills that as you said it's safer than than viagra and it's been around for for the last 23 years the plaintiffs in this case are accusing the fda of fa fast tracking that it's the abortion um pill uses two separate drugs one of them is the the, the one that ends the life of the fetus is is called mifip mifipristone or something like that um and 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 they were they were the plaintiffs accuse the FDA of ignoring the potential adverse reactions, but even if that were true, in the last 23 years since it was approved in the year 2000, it has been exhaustively studied and by more people, and they found that it's much safer than Viagra or penicillin. So what they're trying to do is, is say that because of how it was done 23 years ago, somehow it's dangerous and, you know, it, it can't possibly, um, it can't possibly be allowed. And so I agree with you that that's what's going to happen, but the result is basically that the judge is going to impose a ban on a drug and revoke FDA approval for the drug, but no federal judge has ever done that before. And if they do do it, then people will have to go in person for abortions. And even in the locations that do abortions, I think they are concerned that they're going to, whether or not they'll be able to handle the increased volume because so many people avail themselves of doing it with a pill. So I think that this is going to have uh, a tremendous impact on women across the country and all women across the country. Um, I have a question for you though, Popak, a procedural one, which is if this judge can, I guess it would be uh, issuing, a, if this judge can, can make a ruling that has an effect on all states, what if a different federal judge had a different ruling? Like, in other words, one at the same level, but in a different state. Why does this judge, why does his decision um, win? In other words, why can't a judge in California or New York do yeah. a competing opposite ruling? And, you know, okay. <laughs> they can, but the ban would be the ban. And then you'd have to violate the ban, which, you know, nobody wants to be in, in, in a criminal jeopardy harm's way. So, the drug manufacturers and distributors will have to respect the ban, even if they get a better decision um, rejecting a ban because of standing reasons or other, you know, substantive reasons by another court, meaning there'll be a conflict in the in the circuits and the jurisdiction, and it'll be fast-tracked, I would hope, to the U.S. Supreme Court. And for those that think, for instance, I just want to talk about this, of the, of the Fifth Circuit, which is where this case goes next, I don't think they can skip a step and go right to the Supreme Court. You can, but uh, the, the Supreme Court doesn't like that usually. So they'll have to, the first stop on the train for the DOJ is going to have to be the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit just last week ruled, talk about an assault on women, that the federal law, talk about a federal law, the federal law that prevents a person who is the subject of a 
temporary restraining order um, because of domestic violence, threats, stalking against an intimate partner or child, you know, that person. The federal law said they can't have a gun. They can't have a weapon while they're under that restraining order. Sounds like a good idea. 600 women a year die at the hands of somebody against, some of which they got a restraining order against as part of domestic violence. The fifth said, nope, second circuit, second, uh, second amendment ever since the New York decision, New York versus Braun. Nope. If that regulation didn't exist back in the 17 and 1800s, then uh, it's not going to exist now. We're going to rip it off the book. Sorry. So that is basically hunting season on intimate partners of people that have, have, have gotten restraining orders. And of course, the thing that, that always gets missed in all of this textual originalist analysis, which they only use when it benefits them, which is women in the 17 and 1800s were considered the property of their husbands. They were considered chattel. They didn't have their own rights. They didn't have voting rights. They were not considered full citizens at all. So, of course, there wasn't laws on the books, you know, in the wild, wild west or in 17, 1800s. Hi there. Welcome back. And we're listening to, to well, kind of, legal AS. Were you recently injured in a car accident? Oh, shit. What's this? Root cause of human trafficking? Lewis Howard. We've counted somewhere between three and four hundred kids were likely sexually abused over the two years that you guys were there. You know, what's what's scary and, and where Americans need to wake up, we call this a hit. Trump deteriorates. I think I think we're going to see uh, a lot of movement this year. The silent partner, you know, is the uh, app of things. Trump, all potential cases, including the ones that are over with as well. Letitia James, New York Attorney General, under her very broad superpowers, what we call Executive Law 6312 she can give the death penalty to the company, the financial death penalty to Trump and, and the kids yeah. and Alan Weisselberg and the other 16 people that are part of her case. But that's on the civil side. On the criminal side, Mark Pomerantz in his new book, which he, and he's now out talking about it, on one of your favorite shows, I'm not making this up, Karen, he appeared on Fresh Air, but not with Terry Gross. And on Fresh Air, Mark, it's an inside joke, and in Mark Pomerantz, said the following Lilia. about the Stormy Daniels case Trump and by extension by Cohen. And I'm only repeating makes more uh, Mark Pomerantz. That I'm hasn't terrified you. Mark Pomerantz said that he didn't think the Stormy Daniel case was that strong or that great. He didn't think Cy Vance did either. He, uh, that Cy Vance was a little bit of, um, this is my artist rendering of Cy Vance, meh. Like that was a meh case because it was a misdemeanor. Maybe they could ratchet it up to a felony. We, we went over in the last podcast the differences in how you the, the 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 gymnastics as a prosecutor you have to do to find the second crime or the cover-up of the other crime in order to get it to a misdemeanor. So that wasn't a big case for him. Mark Pomerantz, if you take anything away from his, his um, interviews and anything away from his book, it is the financial um, uh, the, the magic trick cooking of the books that Donald Trump has done with the valuation of real estate 
up and down, hyperinflated and then deflated, depending upon whether he was getting a loan, getting insurance, or trying to get a tax credit. That is where, for him, Mark Pomerantz, the criminal case lies. So he's sort of, uh, this is my view, a little jealous of what Letitia James is doing because he thinks the Manhattan DA's office should have done it too. And he says, yeah, I kind of get why Alvin Bragg didn't want to do it, you know, 90 days into his job. But we made a compelling argument. I don't know why he said. I don't know why Alvin Bragg rejected it. We never had a real substantive meeting about it. But I think there was a very strong case there. As to Stormy Daniels, it looks like Pomerantz's biggest problem was Michael Cohen as a witness. And you went over the little checklist. The pluses we all agree with. Michael was in the room when everything happened, including the Oval Office. Okay, according to his testimony, every place that if you're tracking, if you're following the money with Michael as the bag man, he's in every place that you, you know, for the chain of custody of the $130,000. So that's great. And if that was all Michael Cohen had to testify about, and that was him as a fact witness, that would be a grand slam, double grand slam home run. But that's all the pluses. Also, you know, Mark Pomerantz said that um, that he convinced that that Michael Cohen, um, having met with him, I assume, that Michael Cohen as a witness is also somebody that knows the difference between fact and fiction. That he's, he didn't go as far to say he's a truth teller, but he said that he's somebody that understands the difference between fact and fiction. And like you said, he talks a lot. He's got a lot to say and all of that. That's on the plus side of the column. On the minus side of the column, he was convicted of perjury. He was convicted, you know, he's, which is the, the first place you go in prosecution. He, he actually corrected that this morning in his, um, Michael Cohen corrected that? that in the beatdown episode today that he was not convicted of perjury, which is. A what specific, was he convicted of? He was convicted of lying, which under is different. Oath. Lying under oath uh, right. to Congress, which is different than perjury. That's true. It's a It's a 1001 violation, not a perjury or conviction, not a perjury. I, st- I, I am fine with that. I stand corrected. So I'll be the cross examiner like, that you would be as well. So, <laughs> sir, you were convicted of a 1001 violation because you lied under oath to to Congress. Isn't that right? about right, some of these right. very issues. And that means then you raised you did, your right hand like you did here today. Right, you, you swore know? to tell the truth, yes, just like exactly. you did here. <clears throat> and then you also, you know, they'll go over the whole thing. You brought a lawsuit and, and challenged the Bureau of Prisons and Donald Trump. You said that they kept you in prison longer than they, you should have been. You should have been released under COVID policy, but that they retaliated against you. And you actually won that lawsuit. And you wrote a book, and we'll put it up on the screen for the jury. Click, called Revenge. That's why you're here, sir, right, to get your revenge. So it look, we all like Michael as a person and as a podcaster and as a truth teller, but that is different than Michael as a witness in front of a jury with our adversarial process and, and a vigorous cross-examination by, let's just say, somebody like Joe Tacopina, which I assume is going to be the type of person that Donald Trump would hire, um, who, look, Michael can hold his own, but Joe Tacopina is a very skilled cross-examiner. Um, and always has been in a courtroom. So all of that, Mark Pomerantz was like, Meh, I'm not really into the Stormy Daniels case. Um, it's good that, you know, Alvin's doing it, but that's not the case that I wanted him to do. I wanted him to do the financial fraud case. So we have kind of that out there. So I guess I'll leave it at that with you now. Having now heard um, Mark Pomerantz's sort of view of his own views, we don't have to get too much more into Michael as a witness, but what do you think about Pomerantz's view with the stronger case? Bragg should have done it. I was right. He's wrong. And eh, Stormy Daniels is sort of window dressing. Well, so 
first of all, none of us have all the information about the case, not even about the cases, not even Mark Pomerantz, who left the office about a year ago. So he has no idea what evidence uh, Alvin Bragg's office has has amassed in either case to be able to say which one is stronger or which one is not. I think at the time that uh, the, the time about a year ago when my when Pomerantz left, I think uh, it was the feeling that the Stormy Daniels case was not ready for prime time and the other case was. But I think a lot has happened in the last year that has potentially made one or the other case um, stronger or both. So, so it's hard to comment on the merits of the case and which one should go just because by, by design, it's all secret. We don't have that information, so I don't know. But as for where we are now and Pomerantz, it's a complicated, this is a very complicated knife edge that he is walking on because he, I think a lot of people thought both he and Carrie Dunn, who were the two prosecutors who were working on the Trump case. Now, I don't really know Mark Pomerantz. I, I think I've met him maybe once, but I've certainly never worked with him. Carrie Dunn, I've worked with for a very long time. He worked for Cy uh, when I did for a very long time. And he was actually the attorney who argued all the way to the United States Supreme Court to get the um, Trump's tax returns. And so he was very much a, a, a co-partner, co-prosecutor. It was the two of them who were in charge of the investigation into Trump. And I say that because he has been completely silent and he hasn't, his, his letter of resignation, if he gave one, was not leaked to the press. He has not been appearing on every news show like 60 Minutes, and he certainly didn't write a book that he's going to profit from where he's going to tell all and, and kiss and tell, you know. So I, to me, Mark Pomerantz has gone from what, what I thought many thought was, was a national hero for resigning in protest in a case that he thought should be brought. And now I, I really think he has tarred and marred the case by by doing this sort of kiss and tell and writing a for-profit book about um about a case that, you know, frankly, he, nobody, nobody elected him DA, right? As I say, heavy is the head who wears the crown. And that's something Cy Vance used to say to me all the time when I used to disagree, you know, I disagreed with him sometimes on whether or not something should happen or a case should, uh, whether we should give an offer on a case or not. You know, every once in a while, I would disagree with him, not not a lot, but every once in a while. And, you know, the one thing he would say to me is, is you know, he was elected DA. He's the one who has to make those difficult decisions. And and I respected that. You know, we used to all say if, if an ADA disagreed with something we were telling them to do or asking them to do, um, on a case, you know, we would have to remind them that, you know, that this is that 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 basically we, we are helping Cy Vance with his caseload. You know, these are his cases. He was elected by the people of the state of New York and the, the residents of Manhattan. And he is the one who has to both live and die by the decisions, right? It's not about the individual prosecutor. It's it's at the end of the day, he's the one who answers to everybody that, about whether a case a is very, good or strong. Go ahead. I was going to say, that's a very, very good point. And I made it on a hot take recently. It's easy for even special prosecutors and all they were doing, which is a good and a bad thing, is, is prosecuting Donald Trump. You know, it's like that old line about 
you know, to a, to a hammer, everything's a nail. To a special prosecutor looking at Donald Trump, there's crimes everywhere. I get it. But at the end of the day, and I said this in defense of your boss, I said, at the end of the day, he's not the district attorney. And, and, and the buck stops literally on that desk to make that decision, just as we may not have agreed with Alvin Bragg in his 90th day having to make the decision. And maybe a year later, which he's doing now, he's, he's made a new decision about it. But did uh, let me ask you a question. Did uh, I might have misread this. Did Pomerantz and Dunn go into law practice together? That yeah, new they, firm. Yeah. So I, I get it that Dunn is the, the silent partner, <laughs> you know, he's the uh, abbot to the uh, Pomerantz's Costello, but you know, he's in the same firm, a new public interest law. No, firm. And, and Pomerantz, Mark Pomerantz, don't get me wrong. He is an extremely well-respected lawyer who has a very long history and career as an excellent attorney. And I have tremendous respect for him as a lawyer. What I don't like and what I am not happy about, frankly, but again, who died and made me, <laughs> it had made me queen, right? So Podcaster. But, yeah, but it's but I, I understand. But but what I don't like, and I'll tell you what really upset me about Pomerantz, and I haven't read the book yet, but I did read uh, excerpts of it um, that were reported on, and and again, knowing nothing about the strength of the evidence, and and not necessarily having an opinion on the merits of Bragg's decision, which you know, frankly, I'm a Cy Vance person, so so I thought there was enough. I t I tend to respect that. So even if I were to agree with you know, the decision under Cy Vance that it should go forward. What I strongly disagree with is Pomerantz's criticism of the career prosecutors at the Manhattan DA's mm -hmm. office. And my understanding is that he goes after them in this book and attacks them as, quote, faint-hearted career prosecutors who, you know, who deigned to disagree with him about a decision on whether to cr charge a crime. And he, he criticized them because they spoke about the need to, quote, follow the evidence. And I'm sorry, to me, Mr. Pomerantz really misapprehends the role of the prosecutor. And I was taught under Robert Morgenthau, as was every ADA, because this is the lesson that gets taught to every single person who's there, that you prosecute cases without fear or favor. That was a tradition that was carried on by his successors, Cyrus Vance and now Alvin Bragg. And Morgenthau was just as firm that a crime should not be charged if the evidence did not support it, even if the person morally deserves it, or you're going to get some high profile headline that was going to result from it. You can't do it. And fairness, excellence, ethics, you know, are is the thing that the career prosecutors at the Manhattan DA's office live by. And that's one of the reasons the Manhattan DA's office is known as one of the premier state mm -hmm. prosecutors offices in the country and always has been. And so to go after, again, it's it's fair game. Go after Alvin Bragg. Go after Cy Vance. They were elected to be criticized. They were elected to make these decisions, and you can disagree with them. But the minute you go after the career prosecutors who didn't agree, they agreed with Bragg that there wasn't enough to charge this case. And I want to say one other thing. If what Bragg said was, I just want to investigate more. I want more. Why didn't they, if he cared so much, if they cared so much about the case, why didn't they stay? It was only two months. Why didn't they stay and help him develop the case, number one? And number two, if the yeah. case is so strong, why hasn't the Southern District brought it? That's the other thing. If this case was such a rock crusher, strong case, why hasn't the Southern District brought it? It's actually, I, my understanding is it's a tough case. It's not, it's a, it's a hard call. It, it, it's a hard call, but to go after those career prosecutors, that's when I'm going to stick up. That's what I'm going to stand up and I'm going to say something because those are the finest people I've ever worked with in my life.
pissed Sorry. off edition of Legal AF with Karen it's, it's Friedman just, and Giflo. No, but that. I agree. But let me make it clear. I agree with you. First of all, I got one another thing. You said two things, and, and I like the uh, rock crushing case. That's a great, um, great visual image of that. The case was so great, Cy Vance would have brought it. I mean, everybody talks about Cy Vance had the case for a year and a half. Okay. And yes, he didn't run for re-election. He decided not to do that, and he turned it over to somebody else. He wanted another prosecutor. But it's not like he left a note on the new prosecutor's desk that said, this is a really strong case for you. Don't even bother looking at the evidence and making your own decision. Just indict, indict, indict. It's up to the new guy. And I never thought, I'm sorry, I never thought it was fair to Alvin. And I don't know him personally, and you do, and I didn't interview him, and you did. But I never thought it was fair that the guy was 90 days into his job to make the most important, momentous decision, arguably in his career, to be the only prosecutor in America to bring a criminal case against a former president, right? We love Fawdy Willis, and and I'm, I'm, I check the news every minute, but she hasn't brought it yet either. I think she will, but she hasn't yet either. The feds haven't brought the case against him yet either. Cy Vance had it for two years and didn't. So you're right. Maybe he just was like, I need more time to be convinced. I just got here. And and yeah, that wasn't good enough for, like I said, the hammer and the nail, which is Mark Pomerantz. These are our opinions. People can disagree, I'm sure, in the chat. Let me look at the chat. Yeah, I'm sure in the chat there's going to be some disagreement. But you got to be respectful that Karen is bringing this opinion, even from a place that I can't even bring it from, which is having worked in the Manhattan DA office, DA's office with the very people that Mark Pomerantz seems to have criticized. Now, look, I don't like doing criticism of a book that neither you or I have read anything of. So I'll make a promise to everybody. We'll read it. Karen and I will read it. And we'll highlight the places for which we take exception. And we'll bring it back to the legal AF uh, community, to the family at some other time. But that's where we are at, at this moment. Um, I don't think you're going to get any better analysis than what KFA just gave you of, of it all. And we've talked, I think, honestly and transparently about Michael Cohen as witness and the Stormy Daniels case of it. Now, look, if the Stormy Daniels case is the straw that breaks the camel's back on the heels of the 17 count felony convictions that they got against the Trump organization, and now they're moving here and they're going to squeeze, as I said before, squeeze Alan Weisselberg a little more. 12 He's only sitting 12 miles from the DA's office on Rikers Island, floating around in Queens. Um, it's a very close hop, skip, and a jump by a, by a prosecutor. Go over there and go visit Mr. Weisselberg and tell him, hey, here's a mirror. Why don't you take a look at it? And uh, you're looking at five to ten years. You'll never get out of here in your natural life. You love your grandchildren. You want to look at them through plexiglass um, over the next 10, 15 years? That's your call. You want to be like Bernie Madoff? You want to die in prison? Or, or you can cooperate and talk to us more about Donald Trump in the Stormy Daniels case and maybe some other cases. So maybe this is, you know, this is, I don't know, I'm into metaphors and analogies today. You know, you don't, you don't, um, and, and all the animal lovers, I'm an animal lover. You can see my dog walking around behind me, but I'll, I'll talk about frogs. It's the old joke. You don't boil a frog by throwing him into hot scalding water. You boil a frog by having cold water and you turn the heat up one notch at a time until the frog is cooked. And that may be what Alvin Bragg is doing. We got the Trump org, 17 counts, you know, heats up a little bit. Now you got you got the Stormy Daniels. That's sort of a low-hanging fruit if the jury believes it, based on Michael Cohen and Wylan Weisberg testimony. Now the heat's boy now we're now we're roiling and boiling. And now we go for the kill. Now we go for the thing as he's watching Letitia James 
She was going to trial hell or high water, according to the judge Engoron on October 2nd. He gets to watch that a little bit, too. And then he goes for a second or third prosecution of, you know, we we may be writing a different chapter about Alvin Bragg when this is all said and done. Jury is still out. No pun intended. Let's yeah, move look, on. 2023. Go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just going to say 2023, I think, is going to see at least four, if not more, indictments against Trump. Uh, that's my my feeling. And I think they're going to all somebody has to go first. And, and, and once somebody goes first, I think you're going to see a succession of them. And I think this whole Pomerantz book is just going to look like sour grapes at that point. So, you know, and I, cause I think that's what it is. Everybody's yeah. very, everybody's still investigating. I, there's everybody's still going and it's, I think, I think we're going to see uh, a lot of movement this year. You see the sunshine that's shining into my podcast studio slash dining room. Yes. It's 52 degrees in February in Manhattan, everybody, in New York, everybody. It's like spring. I didn't even wear a coat. I'm literally getting spring sunshine flooding into my, my dining room during our, our, <laughs> our, uh, our podcast. And um, on a jovial moment, on a jovial note, we've got, thank, thank God, thank the higher powers, we've got some sponsors that like to be associated with Legal AF and the Legal AF family. And who better... Who better to bring the message of our sponsors today than Jordy Micellis? Jordy Micellis, fan favorite, my favorite from almost the beginning. He's, he's definitely my favorite brother. Uh, Jordy's going to give us a word from some of our sponsors. Jordy, take it away. And now let's take a quick break to talk about our next partner, Green Chef. Green Chef has expanded their menu. Now choose from 30 recipes weekly with the option to mix and match meals from different dietary preferences in the same box without changing your plan. This means you can order vegan one day and then keto the next. Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well with dinners that work for you, not the other way around. In 2023, help yourself to delicious, convenient recipes that support your healthy lifestyle and taste good too. Eat well without having to sacrifice taste. Also, Green Chef is the only meal kit that is both carbon and plastic offset. Green Chef offsets 100% of their carbon footprint, as well as 100% of the plastic in every box. My wife and I absolutely love Green Chef because of how easy it is to cook the meals and how delicious each meal is. Our favorite recipe is the Parmesan crusted chicken. It is incredible. Go to greenchef.com slash legalaf60 and use code legalaf60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. That's greenchef.com slash legalaf60 and use code legalaf60 to get 60% off plus free shipping. Our next sponsor this week is Highland Titles. At highlandtitles.com, you can become a lord or lady of Glencoe for less than $50. Now, thanks to a quirk in Scottish law, you can buy one square foot of land in Scotland as a gift. Highland Titles has been selling these plots of land for 16 years and have more than over 300,000 happy customers. They use their profits to manage the land as a nature reserve, and the Highland Titles Nature Reserve near Glencoe is one of the most popular nature reserves in Scotland. People travel from all over the world to find their very own plot of land. You get a personalized luxury gift pack and help conserve the beautiful Scottish Highlands at the same time. Now, Highland Titles literally spread ownership of the land amongst thousands of people. It makes it impossible for developers like mm, Donald Trump to turn the landscape into a golf course. It's a really cool gift that makes land ownership a possibility for everyone. You can use the discount code LEGALAF to get 20% off at highlandtitles.com. 
With your purchase, you get a fully personalized, instantly available digital download with access to a dashboard where you can check out the webcams and the exact distance you are from your plot at any time. Just head to highlandtitles.com and use code LEGALAF to get 20% off at checkout. And now, back to the video. All right, let's move from the Manhattan DA's office to abortion rights, constitutional rights, women's right to choose, and where we stand as of February of 2023. We're going to do it through the lens of two, two competing judges, if you will, two competing cases, two competing matters. On the one hand, we've got a judge in the District of Columbia, who we'll talk more about, who had a criminal case pending right now against Catholic right-wing activists who were arrested for blocking abortion clinics and a woman's right to use them, which is a violation of a federal law, not the Constitution, but a federal law against doing just that. And their argument in defense is, well, we can't be, we can't be convicted of that crime any longer because there's no constitutional right to an abortion. I don't know what that has to do with the federal right that's on the books, but okay. And um, the D.C. Uh, Circuit Judge, uh, Judge Catelli, um, who we've talked about in the past, including giving really amazing sentencing to Jan 6 people. She's also the, the judge, a Clinton appointee, who uh, rejected and overturned Trump's ban on transgender people serving in the military, just to give you a little bit of context. And she said, well, this is a very interesting argument that you're making. She didn't even get into the, why are we talking about the Constitution at all? You, you were convicted of a federal crime. But having said that, if you're going to make this argument in my courtroom that there's a link between the constitutional right to an abortion and the crime on the books that the Congress passed many, many years ago, not sure I agree with you, but why don't we do some homework? And she literally gave homework, Karen, to uh, the, the, um, uh, to the two teams of lawyers in the room and said, I want briefing. I want briefing on this issue. The entire Dobbs decision written by Sam Alito and for which they got their votes, is based on the 14th Amendment equal protection, finding that there, is, there isn't a constitutional right to an abortion, that there never was one even 50 years ago under Roe versus Wade. And so, of course, they didn't feel guilty in taking it away because they, they thought there never should have been one, notwithstanding 50 years of precedent and people's reliance on this constitutional principle. And the fact that in the history of our of our country, there's never been a, a constitutional right once extended that was ripped away. Putting that aside for a minute, the entire analysis, all of the briefs that were submitted by the government, by the opponents, all the amicus curiae briefs, friend of the court briefs, all of them focused on the 14th Amendment. They didn't argue that there was any other place in the Constitution that would recognize a woman's right to choose. And so this judge said, what about, for instance, the 13th Amendment? involuntary servitude, arguing why is enforcing a woman to involuntarily carry a fetus to term slavery? I'd like to see some briefing on that. That's interesting. I'm going to turn it to Karen right now. And then after that, we're going to talk about Judge Matthew Kazmarek, who is the judge of choice for the right-wing Magaset. He is the only judge that sits in Amarillo, Texas, in the Northern District of Texas, which sits in the Fifth Circuit, which we've talked about a lot as a right-wing circuit that makes some kind of crazy decisions. Um, and they run in, and there's no link to Amarillo and the case against the FDA-approved abortion pills. 
other than they're forum shopping and they want their judge. And the Republicans love to complain that judges aren't supposed to make law, but they want Matthew Kaczmarek, formerly the deputy general counsel of right-wing Christian fundamentalist group called First Liberty, who is who is a devout Christian who talks about the importance of Christianity, not just in his personal life, but in the way that he rules. And he's the judge that's now gonna, going to likely do a 50-state ban on the use of the FDA-approved abortion pill. Let's start with Judge Catelli, D.C. Circuit Court, and her, on her own, sua sponte, from the bench, given homework. Why don't we talk about the 13th Amendment? Why don't we talk about religious law when we talk about a woman's right to choose? What do you think about all that, Karen? Well, before before I answer your question, my favorite Popak is when you're Professor Popak. So there was something interesting that came out of this case, and it's a doctrine of ratio, how do you pronounce that? Decidendi? Decidendi. Decidendi. I I thought this is perfect for (laughs) Professor Popak to explain to the legal, to the, to the, you know, whenever you nerd out like that and you you give a law school class. So first I would love for you to talk about that doctrine and then I'll, I'll answer your question. Oh, I want to boat up on it while you talk about, you see, I'm going to throw it back to you. I'm going to, I want to get it right. Like we take a lot of pride in when we educate, when we talk not down to our listeners and followers and family and legal layout, but educate them in a way that they that we kind of, ex, you know, like an exploding diagram so that they can really understand it. So I don't want to do it off the cuff. Uh, I could do it even if you force me to, I would. But give me a minute. You talk about it. By the time you come back, I'll be able to kind of break it down for all of our legal efforts. Okay, great. So this was a—I thought this was a really interesting decision by uh, by Judge Caller Cotelli. So she, as you said, sua sponte or on her own, raised this issue to the parties, and basically, it's like she was almost thinking out loud and wondering out loud whether the Dobbs decision, which only ruled on whether the Fourteenth Amendment required the um, access to abortion or right to abortion, right to abortion, whether the scope of the Dobbs decision is confined to the 14th Amendment. And don't forget the 14th Amendment to the Constitution is is about um, no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process or deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. And she looked at all of the arguments in the Dobbs case, all of the briefings, as well as the um, hundreds of amicus briefs that were filed in that case. And they were all the 14th Amendment. And so what she said is that the only thing that that decision, the Dobbs decision, or she wondered out loud whether the only thing that the Dobbs decision uh, applied to was whether or not the 14th Amendment uh, basically um, gave someone a right to an abortion, which they ruled it did not. Although Alito did say in his decision that uh, the Constitution does not confer a right to abortion. He did not say the 14th Amendment does not confer a right to abortion. So so there is that statement that it that the decision may have um, may have encompassed the whole constitution, but she wondered aloud whether whether the ruling is really limited to the 14th Amendment, and are there other places in the constitution 
that could ensure the right to an abortion, such as the 13th Amendment, which was passed in response to slavery, or that's what outlawed or abolished slavery. And the language there is neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except if you're punished for a crime, uh, can take place in the United States. So is this involuntary servitude? And I think it's a novel, interesting argument. You know, it's it's going to be tricky, I think, um, if if nobody else raised it, I think that that makes it slightly tricky. But then I wondered to myself, perhaps nobody else raised it because they didn't want the court to rule on it. Maybe the 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 people who could have raised that said, you know what, I don't I, I want to keep the Supreme Court's decision as narrow as possible so that perhaps you could have this opportunity to uh, make these other arguments. Who knows what the reason is, um, but the bottom line is she is is asking this intellectual uh, question and she's asking the um, the the parties to write on it. And what I also thought was interesting about it was that the what and what she said was that Dobbs doesn't just affect people's access to abortion. It also affects their access to reproductive health services, counseling and referral services, et cetera. So, so by shutting down these places that also offered abortion, I think you also impact women in other ways as well. So, you know, she talked about the the ratio, I thought it was decadendi or decadendi, whatever it is. It's been a long time since I was in law school. So I I I'm hardly there. remember I'm it. I hardly remember it, but I said, Professor Popak, this is this is what you could yeah. do. And I'm here. ready. So so tell us what it is. <laughs> So the radio decidendi of the case, or the radius decidendum, which is more than one, is the principle or rule that is embedded within the precedent. It is the thing upon which the case turns. It is distinguished from dictum, which is, you know, chatter and conversation that the judge uses in the rest of the 38 or 50 or 100 pages. But there's only one or two or multiple legal precedent or principles upon which the case turns. In this case, the argument would be that the 14th Amendment and the analysis of the 14th Amendment was the radio decidendi of the decision. And law students are often asked to figure out not just what the precedent of the case is, but what is the radio, what upon which did the legal principle, did the case and the decision turn on? And I'm going to quote, we're going to give it to Salty so we can put it up on the on the screen, Yale Law Journal, December 1930, and to answer a question, no, I was not there for it. I'm just reading. And it was written by, by Arthur Goodhart, and he said, in discussing the nature of a precedent in English law, Sir John Salmon said, quote, a precedent, therefore, is a judicial decision which contains in itself a principle, the underlying principle which thus forms its authoritative element is often termed the radio decidendi. The concrete decision is binding between the parties to it, but it is the abstract ratio decidendi, thank you, Salty, which alone has the force of law as regards the world at large. How's that, Karen? 
You didn't go, disappoint. Right? You didn't disappoint, Popov. But There's the reason that, but the reason that's so important is because she is that that's going to be whether or not she can make this ruling or not. So if if the crux of the decision is the Fourteenth Amendment and Alito's statement that there's no constitutional right to an abortion in, you know, there's no right to an abortion in the constitution. Is that dicta, right? Or is that the reason for the decision or is it limited just to the 14th amendment? So I, I, I think she's aggressive in a great way. Um, and I think that it'll be interesting to see how she rules and I mean, look, then, of course, you do the mental gymnastics of, well, what if it eventually goes to the United States? You, you know, it's like until with the Supreme Court, even if she even if even if, even if it works, then what? So, well, so we'll here's, see, my, here's, here's my view on this. I, I don't think I think this is much ado about nothing. There is thousands, hundreds of thousands of federal law passed by Congress that are nowhere found in the U.S. Constitution. Not every federal law, in fact, the, the supreme vast majority of law does not find any hook in the, US supreme, in the U.S. Constitution. So for them to say, well, all federal law that Congress passed about abortion is out the window because it's no longer a constitutional right to an abortion, I'm not sure that's even true at all. I mean, unless Congress vacates the law, which they haven't done, if there's a law on the book, you're the former prosecutor, if there's a law on the book that says something is a crime, it remains a crime, even if the the the, the time period in which they passed it was under the assumption that there was a constitutional right for a woman to choose. So I think this is interesting. For those that want to know more about the 13th Amendment analysis, start with uh, the movie Lincoln by Spielberg, which is all about the 13th Amendment and its passage. But there's plenty of scholarly um, uh, journals and approaches applying the 13th Amendment, involuntary servitude, to the relationship, if you will, between a woman and the fetus that she is you know, carrying at that time. There's plenty of religious scholarly thought, including in the Jewish religion, that the fetus is not a human being at all until birth. And therefore, abortion is permitted in Jewish teaching. It is part of women's health care and reproductive health care under Talmudic law and Jewish law. It's not the only religious body. So the argument is, you know, you're forcing, again, your Christian principles down the throat of people or in another anatomical part uh, that you shouldn't be in. Um, and, you know, that has nothing to do with science. It has to do with your beliefs. If Amy Coney Barrett wants to believe that a fetus, you know, is, you know, a part, a heartbeat, even before it's a fetus, is life that needs to be protected. Okay, she can believe that. But the argument is don't shove that down our throat and make us and women lose the right to choose. So this is, this is and, and at the same time, the way that the, um, the progressives are handling this, while they're trying to maybe look for other passages in, and provisions in the, in the Constitution that were missed maybe in the Dobbs analysis, they're going to the state constitutions and pouring through them and saying, well, wait a minute, you've got an individual state constitution that was passed by your people, your state, that says that there's a, a right of privacy. It's expressed. It's not even You don't even have to look for it. It's there in a lot of states' constitution. And why doesn't the right of privacy protect a woman's right to choose and have bodily autonomy? So you got that going on. You got judges um, that are raising the issue in their courtrooms, even in criminal cases. And now we got to talk about Judge Matthew Kaczmarek, who's about, sorry to report, he's about to issue a 50-state um, ban on the FDA-approved abortion pills. 
um, because it doesn't line up with his Christian politics and his Christian theology. Let's just be frank. And they handpicked him, the right, right wing extremists, Senator Hawley's, uh, he's a senator, right? Is Josh Hawley yeah. a senator, Karen? Yeah. Senator Hawley's wife is the lead trial lawyer on behalf of a group of um, right wing anti-abortion doctors whose entire argument for standing, meaning how you even get into federal courts, the number one thing that has to be evaluated first is, well, there might be a hypothetical woman. By the way, this has never happened. A hypothetical woman in the last 23 years that they've been using the pill successfully who has some sort of um, side effect that I have to treat and I don't want to do that. So that's my standing. That's your standing for a, 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 an FDA approved drug that's been on the books for 23 years that that's, has, that's safer than Viagra. By the way, where's Viagra as a constitutional right in the U.S. Constitution? I don't think it's there either. So th this is any other judge that wasn't right-wing MAGA, Trump appointee like Kaczmarek, would reject this case on its face immediately by saying, I don't see any particularized harm, individual standing, or, or harm to you. Goodbye. Good day. Case over. But, but there, he's going he's gonna to do a what? I'll predict it right now, Karen. He's going to do one paragraph. He's going he's gonna to gloss over the whole thing. I find standing. Let's get to the substance of the case. And then he's going to issue the ban. And then the Department of Justice is going to have to do fifth the fifth the two-step dance, Fifth Circuit emergency application to the U.S. Supreme Court. The thing that I found fascinating, because you know, let's be honest, I'm a guy. I did not realize that since the Dobbs decision, the number one way that a woman gets an abortion in the United States is with the FDA-approved abortion pill and not at an abortion clinic. No, it was oh. before It was before Dobbs. It's, oh, there you go. Yeah, no. I'm going to shut up for, now and let you take it from no, here. No, no. <laughs> no, but women for a long time have been choosing uh, the, the abortion pill versus the um, going into a, a place and having an abortion because... You know, it's first of all, it's you get to do it in the privacy of your own home. You don't have to go somewhere. And, and it, it's it's kind of invasive to have an actual abortion. And by taking the, this pill that's been around for 23 years, um, it, it's something you can do on your own, you know, in consultation with a doctor. But since Dobbs, what's been happening is in states that ban abortion, there people are going online and getting the pills and the pills are getting mailed to them. And so they still have access to it. And what this is trying to do is stop that access so that people in, in those states in all states can't have access to to these pills that as you said it's safer than than viagra and has been around for for the last 23 years the plaintiffs in this case are accusing the fda of fast tracking that it's the abortion um pill uses two separate drugs one of them is the the, the one that ends the life of the fetus is is called mifepristone or something like that um and 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 they were they were the plaintiffs accuse the FDA of ignoring the potential adverse reactions, but even if that were true in the last 23 years since it was approved in the year 2000, it has been exhaustively studied and by more people, and they found that it's much safer than Viagra or penicillin. So what they're trying to do is, is say that because of how it was done 23 years ago, somehow it's dangerous and, you know, it, it can't possibly, um, it can't possibly be allowed. And so I agree with you that that's what's going to happen, but the result is 
basically that the judge is going to impose a ban on a drug and revoke FDA approval for the drug, but no federal judge has ever done that before. And if they do do it, then people will have to go in person for abortions. And even in the locations that do abortions, I think they are concerned that they're going to whether or not they'll be able to handle the increased volume because so many people avail themselves of doing it with a pill. So I think that this is going to have uh, a tremendous impact on women across the country and all women across the country. Um, I have a question for you though, Popak, a procedural one, which is if this judge can, I guess it would be uh, issuing, a, if this judge can, can make a ruling that has an effect on all states. What if a different federal judge had a different ruling? Like in other words, one at the same level, but in a different state, why does this judge, why does his decision um, win? In other words, why can't a judge in California or New York do yeah. a competing opposite ruling? And, you know, okay. <laughs> they can, but the ban would be the ban and then you'd have to violate the ban which, you know, nobody wants to be in, in, in a criminal jeopardy harm's way. So the drug manufacturers and distributors will have to respect the ban, even if they get a better decision um, rejecting a ban because of standing reasons or other, you know, substantive reasons by another court, meaning there'll be a conflict in the, in the circuits and the jurisdiction, and it'll be fast-tracked, I would hope the U.S. Supreme Court. And for those that think, for instance, I just want to talk about this, of the, of the Fifth Circuit, which is where this case goes next. I don't think they can skip a step and go right to the Supreme Court. You can, but uh, the, the Supreme Court doesn't like that usually. So they'll have to, the first stop on the train for the DOJ is going to have to be the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit just last week ruled, talk about an assault on women, that the federal law, talk about a federal law, the federal law that prevents a person who is the subject of a temporary restraining order um, because of domestic violence, threats, stalking against an intimate partner or child, you know, that person. The federal law said they can't have a gun. They can't have a weapon while they're under that restraining order. Sounds like a good idea. 600 women a year die at the hands of somebody against some of which they got a restraining order against as part of domestic violence. The fifth said, nope, second circuit, a second, uh, second amendment ever since the New York decision, New York versus Braun. Nope. If that regulation didn't exist back in the 17 and 1800s, then, uh, it's not going to exist now. We're going to rip it off the book. Sorry. So that is basically hunting season on intimate partners of people that have, have, have gotten, restraining orders. And of course, the thing that, that always gets missed in all of this textual originalist analysis, which they only use when it benefits them, which is women in the 17 and 1800s were considered the property of their husbands. They were considered chattel. They didn't have their own rights. They didn't have voting rights. They were not considered full citizens at all. So of course there wasn't laws on the books, you know, in the wild, wild west or in 17, 1800s wherever, to protect a woman in a restraining order environment. That wasn't even a concept. This is where the ludicrousy bears itself out. But this is going to be the Fifth Circuit that any 
this ban from Kazmarek is going to go first. So it's probably going to be the DOJ back on its heels with a bad decision from Kazmarek, a bad decision from the Fifth Circuit, and then have to see if they got the votes at the right-wing MAGA extreme majority of the U.S. Supreme Court. Right, Karen? Yeah. It, this, this really pisses me off, this one. This really is scary. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to have to keep looking at it. But you see we've got these competing competing principles and competing approaches to federal law. They're not even consistent, of course, because they don't want to be consistent. you got the right-wing Catholic activists who are blocking access to abortion clinics. And, yeah, they'll be it's the, the few remaining will be overwhelmed by the volume of people that no longer can get pills, if they can even get there. I mean, it, it you know, the Dobbs right. decision eliminated so many abortion clinics that some women have to travel 5, 8, 12, 15 hours away and cross a state border or two in order to get an abortion. Well, so, what's also what's also outrageous about this is the Dobbs decision said, let's leave it up to the states. Let the states decide. And what this judge who sits alone in this tiny little corner of Texas, who was appointed by Trump and is was not qualified to even be a judge, that he can then come around and now suddenly say and block access to abortion for all women everywhere makes no sense. It's not right. And someone has to stop him somehow. This this can't happen. I mean, this is this is even beyond what what the Dobbs decision said. Well, it's going to be up to somebody like it, it, I'm choking on saying it. It's going to come down to somebody like Kavanaugh, Gorsuch or Amy Coney Barrett to join Roberts, one of them to join Roberts, along with the the normal people, the, the adults on the Supreme Court. So to Mayor Kagan and Amy Coney Barrett uh, and uh, and sorry, I said her name twice and Ketanji Brown Jackson um, and get a, and count to five. If they can't count to five. Because with Roberts, it's four. They need one more. You know, is it is it the the right wing? It Catholic... won't be. It won't be Amy K Coney Barrett. Right. Is, she... the, is it the right wing Catholic law professor with eight children? Is, no, is she is she the one? Is it Kavanaugh who you know we just had a documentary come out at Sundance about why he shouldn't even have, you know he basically perjured himself. Speaking of perjury, when he gave his testimony about um, sexual abuse in his own life, is that the one, or is it Gorsuch who's all over the map? He He's okay with gay marriage, but everything else that has to do with women and sexual issues and reproductive rights and autonomy, he's on the wrong side. So, you know, Robert's better. He should start working now. You know, Robert should be working the hallway now and not and assume there'll be another leak. Now you have to, because they can't get to the bottom of how Dobbs got leaked anyway. Robert should assume it's going to be leaked again, that his hand's going to be forced, and he's got to try to find the vote. He should be finding votes now for these to work the lunchroom, do something. You know, otherwise your own, you know, your legacy as a Supreme Court justice, as the chief justice is, you know, it's already in flames and it's just, it'll just go circle the drain and go right out, go right out the drain. Let's talk finally, though, Karen, I'm going to turn to the heavy lifting over to you on this book because of your prosecutor experience. Maybe you've had an experience like this one. Thomas B. Adams Jr., which if I just gave you the name, you'd think, well, that sounds like a founding father. You got Thomas, you got Adams, you got Jr., no, he's an unemployed Trumper from Illinois 
who was bored one day, barely had the gas money. I'm not making this up. This is from his interview. And he just said, I'm going to go occupy D.C. And he went with another buddy, an older buddy in his 70s, and they drove to Washington. This is me driving to Washington. And they ended up at the ellipse for the speech. And then because everybody else, this you know, the accidental tourist defense that we keep hearing. Well, everybody else is walking towards the Capitol, so I did it too. And so he did. And, um, and he, got, he got convicted. After and I want, we'll talk about the stipulated paper trial in a minute. What that what that's about? Because that's like a new thing we can teach legal efforts. Um, he got convicted and he'll of obstruction, the highest count, twenty years and uh, up to twenty years. And that sentencing was going to be in June. And and they uh, the defense lawyer who was a uh, public defender, federal public defender on one side, and the prosecutor, the DOJ. Um, in in D.C., got together and they decided together with the defendant's agreement, acquiescence, that instead of going through a full trial in front of a jury, and instead of even going through a bench trial, a real bench trial where there's witnesses called and the government puts on all of its evidence and all of that, the defense lawyer and, and I guess Mr. Adams took one look at all of the evidence that the Department of Justice shared with them like his social media, his pictures of him with the Trump flag in there and all the other stuff. And they said, mm, why don't we do this? We'll agree on a list of stipulated facts, both sides, defense and prosecution. And we'll list them, these 50 facts, all about Mr. Adams and, and Adams Jr. and his, what he did that <laughs> And we'll submit that to the judge. And the judge, as the trier of fact, can, can issue a verdict, a ruling against or four, you know, you could quit them. So they worked together on this stipulated set of facts and they submitted to the judge. Judge looked at it, Judge Mehta, who we like, who's also presiding over the Oath Keepers trial. And he said, hmm, based on these facts, the admissions that are in these facts, as they're admitted facts, uh, yeah, he violated the law. He broke the obstruction, uh, the obstruction of, of, um, of a, an official congressional proceeding. And so I'm going to find him guilty as charged. Okay, Karen, we found out something about Judge Mehta. He reads the paper. He reads the internet. What happened next? So Judge Mehta basically read what the defendant said, which was, uh, he, it was this local state journal register in Springfield, Illinois. He said the day after, right after he said, I didn't do anything. I would still do it to this day, even though I had to admit guilt in this case, I don't feel like I did what they said I did. And so Judge Maida was quite uh, perturbed by this. And he, uh, ba he basically said that he wants both sides to provide reasons why the court shouldn't vacate the defendant's convictions of guilt in light of these uh, these post-trial statements that he made. So the reason this is significant and what's going on here is, if you recall, in March, back in March, Judge Carl Nichols was the first federal judge, or I think I think the only federal judge at this point, to rule that. Um, that obstruction, these obstruction charges that Department of Justice are bringing that carry a 20-year maximum doesn't apply to the Jan 6 insurrection people. And that is on appeal. And so 
every other judge is uh, in court is finding that to be the case. Now, the question is, a lot of judges, a lot of defendants, I should say, choose to plead guilty rather than go to trial, because as everybody knows, there's a, a trial tax, if you will. You'll get more time if you go to trial than if you plead guilty. And so what a lot of defendants do is they throw themselves at the mercy of the court and they hope that because they pled guilty and didn't go to trial and didn't risk it, uh, that the judge will show some lenience and they will leniency and that they will not get the up to 20 year sentence. But so far, I think that the most anyone has gotten is closer to 10 years on an obstruction charge, but this, but still that's a, it's a huge, um, a huge exposure. Um, but the problem is, and the reason, the difference between a stipulated trial and a plea. So when a defendant pleads guilty in court, they have to admit to what they did and they do what's called a legal allocution and a factual allocution. And an allocution is just basically you say on the record under oath, you know, you say certain facts and the legal allocution has to do with the law. And also they ask you questions like, are you, you know, of sound mind? Are you on any drugs? Anyone forced you or threatened you or coerced you to take this plea? No, 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 no. Okay. And then what did you do? And you'll say, I admit to going into the Capitol on, you know, on January 6th and I went to the Senate floor, et cetera. And that's, that's a plea and that's an allocution. And those are facts. A, a stipulated trial is slightly different. And that is where the parties agree to the facts. They both agree to a set of facts and they have almost like a fake bench trial where they submit the facts to the court and the court decides based on those facts, what law applied to the facts, whether someone is guilty. And here he was found guilty of these stipulated facts. Now, you might ask, why would someone do such a thing versus plead guilty? And the answer is because of this um, Judge Nichols decision that is up on appeal. The law is unclear how the appellate courts are going to rule on whether the obstruction charge applies to the kind of factual scenario of January 6, because if you recall, and, and we talked about this, uh, we talked about this in an earlier podcast back in March, um, that that the, the case was more of a white collar case. It was um, an Enron case that required uh, that that this that this law was the statute was passed. And that's what it re, it re, um, what it what it uh, uh, applies to, sorry. And so it's more like a corporate fraud kind of case, not a case that applies to um, when you go into the Capitol and, you know, and riot essentially and try to overthrow it. Um, so basically, you know, Judge Nichols said that the conduct has to involve some action with respect to a document, record, or other object. And and that was sort of what, what he, you know, what he requires for there to be obstruction. And so, as I said, Judge Mehta and the other judges don't re require that. And they do think obstruction applies. But by if you plead guilty, you waive any right to make that argument. But if you do a trial and you're found guilty at trial, but an appellate court says 
the law doesn't apply there, then you uh, can have that charge back. So essentially he did it this way as a way to essentially plead guilty, but preserve his appellate options in case the appellate courts agree with Judge Nichols on, in terms of that. But he'll still be convicted of the lower charges. He just won't face the higher obstruction charge with a higher penalty. So, so that's the reason he, he did it this way. Yeah, that, that's a very um, um, insightful analysis as to, well, why would somebody do a paper trial um, rather than just plead guilty? And that's exactly what KFA just said. Now, his problem is he's pissed off the judge because what you can't do is make the judge go through that exercise, have a trial, paper or otherwise, um, have the judge make a ruling because you wouldn't, you wouldn't um, guilty, so you don't get that credit at sentencing time because you made the judge do something and then go on, you know, you know, be interviewed at your trailer and, you know, in front of your double wide, um, you know, to your local newspaper and say, oh, it was all a sham. It was all a farce. I don't believe anything. I, I, I had my fingers crossed behind my back. Um, and, uh, you know, I, it wasn't true. I, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't have mental state, criminal mind. I was just, you know, I, I really believe Donald Trump won. I'm going to stick with that. Yeah, all right. All right, Mr. Adams, come on down. You're going to have another trial, and this time in front of a jury. And like you said, Karen, um, woe be you at the time of sentencing, because all of the things that he's doing, all of these backflips to try to get away from his sentence, um, is just going to end up in the pre-sentencing report. And the judge, and the judge is going to say something in June when he says, first, you made me go through a stipulated factual trial because you didn't want to plead guilty. Okay. And, and we did that and you signed it and you stipulated to all those facts. And then you didn't like that. And you wanted to have your cake and eat it too. And you wanted to be a big shot on your local newspaper and have another two minutes of fame because being an obstructionist insurrectionist wasn't enough for you in the history books. You wanted to give the local newspaper some story. And so you, so you, so we had to do the trial all over again with a real trial this time. And you got convicted again. Hi there. Welcome back. And we're going to, Listen to Legal AF. Dictum, which is, you know, chatter and conversation that the judge uses in the rest of the 38 or 50 or 100 pages. But there's only one or two or multiple legal precedent or principles upon which the case turns. In this case, the argument would be that the 14th Amendment and the analysis of the 14th Amendment was the radio decidendi of the decision. And law students are often asked to figure out not just what the precedent of the case is, but what is the radio, what upon which did the legal principle, did the case and the decision turn on? And I'm going to quote, we're going to give it to Salty, so you can put it up on the, on the screen. Yale Law Journal, December 1930, and to answer a question, no, I was not there for it. I'm just reading. And it was written by, by Arthur Goodhart. And he said, in discussing the nature of a precedent in English law, Sir John Salmon said, quote, a precedent, therefore, is a judicial decision which contains in itself a principle. The underlying principle, which thus forms its authoritative element, is often termed the radio decidendi. The concrete decision is binding between the parties to it, but it is the abstract ratio decidendi, 
Thank you, Salty, which alone has the force of law as regards the world at large. How's that, Karen? You didn't good, disappoint. Right? You didn't disappoint, <laughs> Coco. But the reason that but the reason that's so important is because she is that that's going to be whether or not she can make this ruling or not. So if if the crux of the decision is the Fourteenth Amendment and Alito's statement that there's no constitutional right to an abortion in you know there's no right to an abortion in the Constitution is that dicta. Right. Or is that the reason for the decision or is it limited just to the 14th Amendment? So I, I, I think she's aggressive in a great way. Um, and I think that it'll be interesting to see how she rules. And I mean, look, then, of course, you do the mental gymnastics of well, what if it eventually goes to the United States? You, you know, it's like until with the Supreme Court. Even if she, even if, even if, even if it works, then what? So, well, so we'll here's see, my, but... here's, here's my view on this. I, I don't think, I think this is much ado about nothing. There's thousands, hundreds of thousands of federal law passed by Congress that are nowhere found in the U S constitution. Not every federal law. In fact, the, the Supreme vast majority of law does not find any hook in the U S Supreme in the U S constitution. So for them to say, well, all federal law that Congress passed about abortion is out the window because it's no longer a constitutional right to an abortion. I'm not sure that's even true at all. I mean, unless Congress vacates the law, which they haven't done, if there's a law on the book, you're the former prosecutor, if there's a law on the book that says something is a crime, it remains a crime, even if the the, the, the time period in which they passed it was under the assumption that there was a constitutional right for a woman to choose. So I think this is interesting for those that want to know more about the 13th Amendment analysis. Start with uh, the movie Lincoln by Spielberg, which is all about the 13th Amendment and its passage. But there's plenty of scholarly um, uh, journals and approaches applying the 13th Amendment involuntary servitude to the relationship, if you will, between a woman and the fetus that she is you know, carrying at that time. There's plenty of religious scholarly thought, including in the Jewish religion, that the fetus is not a human being at all until birth and therefore abortion is permitted in jewish teaching it is part of women's health care and reproductive health care under talmudic law and jewish law it's not the only religious body so the argument is you know you're forcing again your christian principles down the throat of people or in another anatomical part uh, that you shouldn't be in um and, you know, that has nothing to do with science. It has to do with your beliefs. If Amy Coney Barrett wants to believe that a fetus, you know, is, you know, a, a part, a heartbeat, even before it's a fetus, is life that needs to be protected. OK, she could believe that. But the argument is don't shove that down our throat and make us and women lose the right to choose. So this is this is and, and at the same time, the way that the. Um, the progressives are handling this while they're trying to maybe look for other passages in and provisions in the, in the Constitution that were missed, maybe in the Dobbs analysis. They're going to the state constitutions and pouring through them and saying, well, wait a minute, you've got an individual state constitution that was passed by your people, your state, that says that there's a, a right of privacy. It's expressed. It's not even you don't even have to look for it. It's there in a lot of states' constitution. And why doesn't the right of privacy protect a woman's right to choose and have bodily autonomy? So you got that going on. You got judges 
um, that are raising the issue in their courtrooms, even in criminal cases. And now we got to talk about Judge Matthew Kaczmarek, who's about, sorry to report, he's about to issue a 50-state um, ban on the FDA-approved abortion pills um, because it doesn't line up with his Christian politics and his Christian theology. Let's just be frank. And they handpicked him, the right-right-wing extremists, Senator Hawley's... Uh, He's a senator, right? Is Josh Hawley yeah. a senator, Karen? Yeah. Senator Hawley's wife is the lead trial lawyer on behalf of a group of um, right-wing anti-abortion doctors whose entire argument for standing, meaning how you even get into federal courts, the number one thing that has to be evaluated first, is, well, there might be a hypothetical woman. By the way, this has never happened. A hypothetical woman in the last 23 years that they've been using the pills successfully who has some sort of um, side effect that I have to treat and I don't want to do that. So that's my standing. That's your standing for uh, uh, an FDA approved drug that's been on the books for 23 years that that's has that's safer than Viagra. By the way, where's Viagra as a constitutional right in the U.S. Constitution? I don't think it's there either. So th this is any other judge that wasn't right wing MAGA Trump appointee like Kaczmarek would reject this case on its face immediately by saying, I don't see any particular particularized harm, individual standing or, or harm to you. Goodbye. Good day. Case over. But, but there he's going to he's going to do a what I predict it right now. Karen, he's going to do one paragraph. <clears throat> he's going to he's going to gloss over the whole thing. I find standing. Let's get to the substance of the case. And then he's going to issue the ban. And then the Department of Justice is going to have to do fifth the fifth the two step dance, fifth circuit emergency application to the U.S. Supreme Court. The thing that I found fascinating, because let's be honest, I'm a guy. I did not realize that since the Dobbs decision, the number one way that a woman gets an abortion in the United States is with the FDA approved abortion pill and not at an abortion clinic. No, it was oh. before it was before Dobbs. It's, oh, there you go. Yeah. No, I'm going to shut up for, now and let you take it. No, no, go. <laughs> no. But women for a long time have been choosing uh, the, the abortion pill versus the um, going into a, a place and having an abortion because. You know, it's first of all, it's you get to do it in the privacy of your own home. You don't have to go somewhere. And, and it, it's it's kind of invasive to have an actual abortion. And by taking the, this pill that's been around for 23 years, um, it's, it's something you can do on your own in, a, in consultation with a doctor. But since Dobbs, what's been happening is in states that ban abortion, there people are going online and getting the pills and the pills are getting mailed to them. And so they still have access to it. And what this is trying to do is stop that access so that people in, in those states in all states can't have access to to these pills that as you said it's safer than than viagra and has been around for for the last 23 years the plaintiffs in this case are accusing the fda of fa fast tracking it's the abortion um pill uses two separate drugs one of them is the the, the one that ends the life of the fetus is is called mifepristone or something like that um and 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 they were they were the plaintiffs accused the FDA of ignoring the potential adverse reactions. But even if that were true in the last 23 years, since it was approved in the year 2000, it has been exhaustively studied and by more people. And they found that it's much safer than Viagra or penicillin.
So what they're trying to do is, is say that because of how it was done 23 years ago, somehow it's dangerous and, you know, it, it can't possibly, um, it can't possibly be allowed. And so I agree with you that that's what's going to happen, but the result is basically that the judge is going to impose a ban on a drug and revoke FDA approval for the drug, but no federal judge has ever done that before. And if they do do it, then people will have to go in person for abortions. And even in the locations that do abortions, I think they are concerned that they're going to whether or not they'll be able to handle the increased volume because so many people avail themselves of doing it with a pill. So I think that this is going to have uh, a tremendous impact on women across the country and all women across the country. Um, I have a question for you, though, Popak, a procedural one, which is if this judge can, I guess it would be uh, issuing, a, if this judge can, can, make a ruling that has an effect on all states. What if a different federal judge had a different ruling? Like in other words, one at the same level, but in a different state, why does this judge, why does his decision um, win? In other words, why can't a judge in California or New York do yeah. a competing opposite ruling and, you know, okay. <laughs> they can, but the ban would be the ban and then you'd have to violate the ban which, you know, nobody wants to be in, in, in a criminal jeopardy harm's way. So the drug manufacturers and distributors will have to respect the ban, even if they get a better decision um, rejecting a ban because of standing reasons or other, you know, substantive reasons by another court, meaning there'll be a conflict in the, in the circuits and the jurisdiction, and it'll be fast-tracked, I would hope to the U.S. Supreme Court. And for those that think, for instance, I just want to talk about this, of the, of the Fifth Circuit, which is where this case goes next, I don't think they can skip a step and go right to the Supreme Court. You can, but uh, the, the Supreme Court doesn't like that usually, so they'll have to, the first stop on the train for the DOJ is going to have to be the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit just last week ruled, talk about an assault on women, that the federal law, talk about a federal law, the federal law that prevents a person who is the subject of a temporary restraining order um, because of domestic violence, threats, stalking against an intimate partner or child, you know, that person, the federal law said they can't have a gun, they can't have a weapon while they're under that restraining order. Sounds like a good idea. 600 women a year die at the hands of somebody against some of which they got a restraining order against as part of domestic violence. The fifth said, Nope, second circuit, a second, uh, second amendment ever since the New York decision, New York versus Braun. Nope. If that regulation didn't exist back in the 17 and 1800s, then, uh, it's not going to exist now. We're going to rip it off the book. Sorry. So that is basically hunting season on intimate partners of people that have, have have gotten restraining orders. And of course, the thing that, that always gets missed in all of this textual originalist analysis, which they only use when it benefits them, which is women in the 17 and 1800s were considered the property of their husbands. They were considered chattel. They didn't have their own rights. They didn't have voting rights. 
they were not considered full citizens at all. So, of course, there wasn't laws on the books, you know, in the wild, wild west or in 17, 1800s, wherever, to protect a woman in a restraining order environment. That wasn't even a concept. This is where the ludicrousy bears itself out. But this is going to be the Fifth Circuit that any this ban from Kazmarek is going to go first. So it's probably going to be the DOJ back on its heels with a bad decision from Kazmarek, a bad decision from the Fifth Circuit, and then have to see if they got the votes at the right-wing MAGA extreme majority of the U.S. Supreme Court. Right, Karen? Yeah. This this really pisses me off, this one. This really is scary. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to have to keep looking at it. But you see we've got these competing, competing principles and competing approaches to federal law. They're not even consistent, of course, because they don't want to be consistent. You got the right wing Catholic activists who are blocking access to abortion clinics. And yeah, they'll be it's the the few remaining will be overwhelmed by the volume of people that no longer can can get pills if they can even get there. I mean, it it, you know, the Dobbs decision eliminated so many abortion clinics that some women have to travel five, eight, 12, 15 hours away and cross a state border or two in order to get an abortion. Well, so what's also it, what's also yeah. outrageous about this is the Dobbs decision said, let's leave it up to the states. Let the states decide. And what this judge who sits alone in this tiny little corner of Texas, who was appointed by Trump and is was not qualified to even be a judge, that he can then come around and now suddenly say and block access to abortion for all women everywhere makes no sense. It's not right. And someone has to stop him somehow. This this can't happen. I mean, this is this is even beyond what what the Dobbs decision said. Well, it's going to be up to somebody like it, it, I'm choking. I'm saying it. It's going to come down to somebody like Kavanaugh, Gorsuch or Amy Coney Barrett to join Roberts, one of them to join Roberts, along with the. Uh, the normal people, the, the adults on the Supreme Court, so to Mayor Kagan and Amy Coney Barrett, uh, and, uh, and sorry, I said her name twice, and Ketanji Brown-Jackson, um, and get a, and count to five. If they can't count to five, because with Roberts, it's four. They need one more. You know, is it, is it the the right-wing it Catholic? Won't be, it won't be Amy K- Coney Barrett. Right, is, the, is it the right-wing Catholic law professor with eight children? Is, no, is she her. is she the one? Is it Kavanaugh who, you know, we just had a documentary come out of Sundance about why he shouldn't even, have, you know, he basically perjured himself, speaking of perjury, when he gave his testimony about um, sexual abuse in his own life. Is that the one? Or is it Gorsuch who's all over the map? He He's okay with gay marriage, but everything else that has to do with women and sexual issues and reproductive rights and autonomy, he's on the wrong side. So, you know, Robert's better. He should start working now. You know, Robert should be working the hallway now and not and assume there'll be another leak. Now you have to assume, because they can't get to the bottom of how Dobbs got leaked anyway. Robert should assume it's going to be leaked again, that his hand's going to be forced, and he's got to try to find the vote. He should be finding votes now for these to work the lunchroom, do something. You know, otherwise your own, you know, your legacy as a Supreme Court justice, as the chief justice, is, you know, it's already in flames, and it'll just, it'll just go circle the drain and go right out, go right out the drain. Let's talk finally, though, Karen, I'm going to turn to the heavy lifting over to you on this book because of your prosecutor experience. Maybe you've had an experience like this one. Thomas B. Adams Jr., which if I just gave you the name, you'd think, well, that sounds like a founding father. You got Thomas, you got Adams, you got Jr. No, he's an unemployed Trumper from Illinois 
who was bored one day, barely had the gas money. I'm not making this up. This is from his interview. And he just said, I'm going to go occupy D.C. And he went with another buddy, an older buddy in his 70s, and they drove to Washington. This is me driving to Washington. And they ended up at the ellipse for the speech. And then because everybody else, this you know, the accidental tourist defense that we keep hearing. Well, everybody else was walking towards the Capitol, so I did it too. And so he did. And, um, and he, got, he got convicted after, and I want, we'll talk about the stipulated paper trial in a minute, what, that, what that's about, because that's like a new thing we can teach legal AFers. Um, he got convicted and he'll, of obstruction, the highest count, 20 years, and uh, up to 20 years. And that sentencing was going to be in June. And, and they, uh, the defense lawyer, who was a uh, public defender, federal public defender on one side, and the prosecutor, the DOJ um, in, in D.C., got together and they decided together with the defendant's ag agreement, acquiescence, that instead of going through a full trial in front of a jury, and instead of even going through a bench trial, a real bench trial where there's witnesses called and the government puts on all of its evidence and all of that, the defense lawyer and and I guess Mr. Adams took one look at all of the evidence that the Department of Justice shared with them, like his social media, his pictures of him with the Trump flag in there and all the other stuff. And they said, mm, why don't we do this? We'll agree on a list of stipulated facts, both sides, defense and prosecution, and we'll list them. These 50 facts all about Mr. Adams and, and Adams Jr. and his what he did that day. And we'll submit that to the judge. And the judge, as the trier of fact, can can issue a verdict, a ruling against or for, you know, you could acquit them. So they work together on this stipulated set of facts and they submit it to the judge. Judge looked at it. Judge Mehta, who we like, is also presiding over the Oath Keepers trial. And he said, hmm, based on these facts and the admissions that are in these facts, as they're admitted facts, uh... Yeah, he violated the law. He broke the obstruction, uh, the obstruction of of, um, of a, an official congressional proceeding, and so I'm going to find him guilty as charged. Okay, Karen, we found out something about Judge Mehta. He reads the paper. He reads the internet. What happened next? So Judge Mehta basically read what the defendant said, which was uh, he, it was this local state journal register in Springfield, Illinois. He said the day after, right after he said, I didn't do anything. I would still do it to this day, even though I had to admit guilt in this case, I don't feel like I did what they said I did. And so Judge Maida was quite uh, perturbed by this. And he, uh, ba he basically said that he wants both sides to, to provide reasons why the court shouldn't vacate the defendant's convictions of guilt in light of these uh, these post-trial statements that he made. So the reason this is significant and what's going on here is, if you recall, in March, back in March, Judge Carl Nichols was the first federal judge, or I think I think the only federal judge at this point, to rule that... Um, that obstruction, these obstruction charges that Department of Justice are bringing that carry a 20-year maximum doesn't apply to the Jan 6 insurrection people. And that is on appeal. And so every other judge is uh, in court is finding that to be the case. Now, 
the question is a lot of judges, a lot of defendants, I should say, choose to plead guilty rather than go to trial because as everybody knows, there's a, a trial tax, if you will. You'll get more time if you go to trial than if you plead guilty. And so what a lot of defendants do is they throw themselves at the mercy of the court and they hope that because they pled guilty and didn't go to trial and didn't risk it, uh, that the judge will show some lenience and they will leniency and that they will not get the up to 20 year sentence. But so far, I think that the most anyone has gotten is closer to 10 years on an obstruction charge, but this, but still that's a, it's a huge, um, a huge exposure. Um, but the problem is, and the reason, the difference between a stipulated trial and a plea. So when a defendant pleads guilty in court, they have to admit to what they did and they do what's called a legal allocution and a factual allocution. And an allocution is just basically you say on the record under oath, you know, you say certain facts and the legal allocution has to do with the law. And also they ask you questions like, are you, you know, of sound mind? Are you on any drugs? Anyone forced you or threatened you or coerced you to take this plea? No, 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 no. Okay, then what did you do? And you'll say, I admit to going into the Capitol on, you know, on January 6th and I went to the Senate floor, etc. And that's that's a plea and that's an allocution and those are facts. A, a stipulated trial is slightly different and that is where the parties agree to the facts. They both agree to a set of facts and they have almost like a fake bench trial where they submit the facts to the court and the court decides based on those facts, what law applied to the facts, whether someone is guilty. And here he was found guilty of these stipulated facts. Now you might ask, why would someone do such a thing versus plead guilty? And the answer is because of this um, Judge Nichols' decision that is up on appeal. The law is unclear how the appellate courts are going to rule on whether the obstruction charge applies to the kind of factual scenario of January 6th, because if you recall, and, and we talked about this, uh, we talked about this in an earlier podcast back in March, uh, that that the, the case was more of a white collar case. It was um, an Enron case that required uh, that, that this that this law was the statute was passed. And that's what it re, it re, um, what it what it uh, uh, applies to, sorry. And so it's more like a corporate fraud kind of case, not a case that applies to um, when you go into the Capitol and, you know, and riot essentially and try to overthrow it. Um, so basically, you know, Judge Nichols said that the conduct has to involve some action with respect to a document, record, or other object. And and that was sort of what, what he, you know, what he requires for there to be obstruction. And so, as I said, Judge Mehta and the other judges don't re require that. And they do think obstruction applies. But by if you plead guilty, you waive any right to make that argument. But if you do a trial and you're found guilty at trial, but an appellate court says the law doesn't apply there, then you uh, can have that charge back. So 
essentially he did it this way as a way to essentially plead guilty, but preserve his appellate options in case the appellate courts agree with Judge Nichols on, in terms of that. But he'll still be convicted of the lower charges. He just won't face the higher obstruction charge with a higher penalty. So, so that's the reason he, he did it this way. Yeah, that, that's a very um, um, insightful analysis as to, well, why would somebody do a paper trial on rather than just plead guilty? And, and that's exactly what KFA just said. Now, his problem is he's pissed off the judge because what you can't do is make the judge go through that exercise, have a trial paper or otherwise, um, have the judge make a ruling because you wouldn't you wouldn't um, plead guilty. So you don't get that credit at sentencing time because you made the judge do something and then go on, you know, you know, be interviewed at your trailer. In, you know, in front of your double wide, um, you know, to your local newspaper, and say oh, it was all a sham, it was all a farce. I don't believe anything. I, I, I had my fingers crossed behind my back, um, and uh, you know, I, it wasn't true. I, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't have mental state, criminal mind. I was just, you know, I, I really believe Donald Trump. Won. I'm going to stick with that. Yeah, all right, all right, Mr. Adams, come on down. You're going to have another trial, and this time in front of a jury. And like you said, Karen, um, woe be you at the time of sentencing, because all of the things that he's doing, all of these backflips to like get away from his sentence, um, is just going to end up in the pre-sentencing report. And the judge, and the judge is going to say something in June when he says, first, you made me go through a stipulated factual trial because you didn't want to plead guilty. Okay. And, and we did that and you signed it. And you stipulated to all those facts and then you didn't like that and you wanted to have your cake and eat it too. And you wanted to be a big shot on your local newspaper and have another two minutes of fame because being an obstructionist insurrectionist wasn't enough for you in the history books. You wanted to give the local newspaper some story. And so you, so you, so we had to do the trial all over again with a real trial this time and you got convicted again. And now it's time for sentencing. So whereas I would have given you under, where's the sentencing guidelines? Hold on. Let me run my finger. I would have given you, you know, 92 months or 88 months. I'm now going to give you 122 months or whatever. The, yeah, he's going to get punished. Right. He's going to get punished for this. And this guy who, I'm, I'm not saying this for sympathy. People know this show. And know me. But he told the reporter that he, he, he didn't have enough gas money to get back from Washington after he stormed the Capitol and went and played insurrectionist for the day. And so he got stuck in another state because he didn't have he's unemployed, no gas money. I mean, this is the people that were crawling all over besides the ex-Marines and current Marines and law enforcement and ex-police and current all the crazies that were there. You know, this was the average person that got sucked in like a moth to a flame to the Trump cult and decided he actually compared himself to Occupy Wall Street when everybody, <laughs> you live down, you live downtown, when everybody occupied Zoo, Zoo, uh, Zucchetti Zuccotti Park, Park. Zuccotti Park across the street from, um, where is that? It's right across, isn't it across from FINRA and right, right, yes. Right there. It's on Broadway, right at Broadway yeah. Liberty. It was like a, it was like a sit-in. 
extended sit-in until they were fine until they started hooking up to the electrical pole behind them with tents and oh, no, that's a whole that's a whole other story a whole other story we're not going to tell right now <laughs> a whole other story we're not going to tell but it was a peaceful and it didn't obstruct a thing i mean maybe the people that like to walk through that little tiny triangle of a park it wasn't a big park by the way it's sort of a micro pocket park that sat in between four major streets in downtown but that's what he said oh, that's what we're doing that's what you're doing. You're breaking through locked doors and fire doors of the Capitol, making your way into the Senate, running around with your Trump flag and, and, and walked right by Capitol Police. This is all in the statement from the Department of Justice. We'll put that up too. That walked right by Capitol Police who were fighting for their lives and fighting to protect elected officials. This Yahoo just walks right by, hey, takes selfies, takes pictures and all of that. And I was actually surprised because, you know, the judge could have given him a misdemeanor, could have given him, you know, failure to leave a restricted area, you know, one of the other ones. This this guy got convicted of obstruction, the highest count. And yes, well, it's up he for went grabs. to the Senate floor. He went to because he, he went. went to the Senate floor, yeah. and he said, "Well, I didn't take anything." Like I don't really understand the thought process. They really think they were on a day tour of the Capitol, yeah. And uh, because the oh, the police let us in, the police let us do it, or. No, the police were outnumbered and outmatched. And while you were inside parading around with a flag, they were outside fighting for their, literally fighting for their lives, stopping the Ashley Babbitts of the world to getting to the speaker's hallway to go whatever was in her backpack and in her mind, stopping her, stopping the West Terrace assault, stopping the fall of the line outside, because all that would have led to is the assassination of elected officials, Republican and Democrat and Independent. And this guy's taking pictures like, you know, look, hey, look at me, mom, dad, whatever. By the way, he's a father of three children, just to throw that out. You know there. what, though? He he's pathetic until they get Donald <laughs> Trump. And I'm right. just saying, you know, like he's pathetic. The really bad guy is Donald Trump. And he, until Donald Trump is held accountable, along with all these other pathetic guys, it's not going to be fair. That That's just how I see it. Yeah, I agree. I'm not here to say, but 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 I but we're saying the same thing. But I want to make it clear for the audience and for the, the the trolls in chat, because they haven't yet brought down the kingpin, the Godfather, doesn't mean along the way you don't take out all of the soldiers and the capos and all of that. You do them too. So it's not like people think it's some sort. I've seen arguments like I don't want to hear about the other 950. Until I see Donald Trump in chains. Okay. You got to do it all. You know, you got to walk and chew gum at the same time. You got to take out the 950. I'm okay with it. As long as they do it all. But you shouldn't get a pass either on the 950 because they haven't brought down Donald Trump yet. But we all agree there is one person who is responsible, or as Mark Pomerantz said, just to bring it home today, as Mark Pomerantz said, this was a crash of an airplane where it was pilot error. And the pilot error, the pilot was Donald Trump. So I get it. And I believe me, the day that he is indicted somewhere and somebody has the temerity and the balls to perp walk him, <laughs> which, wow. And we all, we hope. And if we're wrong, we're wrong. I mean, I know I see a lot of people, you know, in, and you see my dog down here. She's, she gets very excited by our podcast. Um, <laughs> this is Lily for those that can see her. By the um, way, the, 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 the balls are going to be yeah. a judge that will set bail and hold them in. Absolutely. That's, that's uh, yeah. where we're going to see. Oh, yeah. they're Right. And they let a lot of them out. Like Bannon walked out the front door the, the first yeah. day he was indicted. But if this is like 
you know, it depends on which crime he's indicted for. You know, it's this 2016 cover-up of Stormy Daniels. I'm not sure that's a purple. Well, that, yeah, that's not but even it, qualified. They'll qualify. But, <laughs> but for it, you know, what he just the the what trying to overthrow our government and our election. I mean, and, and basically pointing a armed crowd at the Capitol to try and stop the counting of the votes, the electoral college. I mean, in the fake elector scheme. You know, that's as close to treason as as it comes. So I don't think a judge will have the, you know, the temerity, <laughs> the ability to do that. But, but that that to me is the, 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 the prosecutions, I think, are going to be coming. And it, it really feels like like that's the case for, for the first time. I have to say they all feel like they are coming. But we'll see. That's only that's only step one. Yep. Well, we've reached another uh, end of another Bye, edition. Lily. I know. <laughs> Lily. Bye, Lily. Such a good Podcast, girl. Podcaster, and I'm playing tug of war with her under the table. She's um, such a good girl. <laughs> she is a good girl. Uh, end of another edition of Legal AF, midweek edition. Michael Popak, Karen Friedman, Ignifolo. We bring it to you every Wednesday in between. I do hot takes, and you can follow me at, at MS Popak. Carol, what's your social media handle? KFA Legal, at KFA Legal. At KFA Legal, easy to remember. And we do this every week on Wednesday, come hell or high water, come rain or shine, nothing stops this podcast, doesn't stop the weekend edition with Ben Micellis and me. And uh, people say, how can you support us? Support our sponsors, really important. You can also do things like buy our merchandise. We've got Legal AF wear that you can, here we go, right here. You got some T-shirts, you got some long sleeve T-shirts, short sleeve T-shirts, you got coffee mugs, and you can just do the thing that's the cheapest thing to do, but really is we appreciate it because it keeps the show on the air and helps with the ratings and the algorithm. You just watch the show, and then if you like it on YouTube, go over and do a listen or a plus, a subscribe free or follow of the audio version and, and we're on every platform that you can get your podcast from from spotify to apple to google and all of that go do that do both that really helps us if you're watching and then you know because sometimes you get, we get ten thousand we'll get ten thousand tonight in the chat overall between facebook and youtube you know then you're like oh i missed a lot there were a lot of really good points that karen made and uh, and popak nodded about and so you can go get it from the audio version and that's really helpful to us too so that's the way shout out to the Midas mighty karen last last word till next wednesday Oh, last word. I have no last words. <laughs> you hate when I throw you the last word. Well, no, sometimes I do. But today, this was an emotional episode for me. And I, don't, yeah. I got I got unusually, unusually emotional uh, about all the topics, frankly. Not maybe not the third <laughs> one, but, but the first two, you know, yeah. so. Very, very, this is why you're such a great podcaster and, and a close friend. You're authentic in your opinions. <laughs> you're, you bring a voice that's unmatched. Um, and you had the last word because you gave a very, a very searing analysis of really every one of our cases from the, um, the abortion uh, future ban of all abortion pills by a small, a small judge in a, in a small town in Amarillo, Texas, to uh, constitutional analysis of whether there's a, a right to choose, to um, the sentencing of uh, or the soon-to-be new trial of an insurrectionist and one close and near and dear to your heart, which is an attack on line prosecutors and career prosecutors in the Manhattan DA's office, which you found to be 
uncalled for. Yeah, don't, don't go after my people. So don't go. <laughs> we're going to leave it at that. Don't go after my people. Karen Freeman, <laughs> See everybody next week. Shout out to Bye. the Midas Mighty.